everybody, and welcome to Ornate Stairwells, the movie podcast. I'm Autumn, I'm joined as always by Nia. Hi, I'm Neve. We just hit record moments ago. No, we didn't. <laughs> 40 minutes ago. <laughs> Sorry, 41 and a half minutes ago. <sighs> if you don't listen to the... Till... I, I feel like we've talked about this before. After Bela Lugosi's dead, sometimes there's content. Usually, if I'm editing, most of the time, I will find something to put there. And if Sometimes it's rec- like two if, minutes long. Yeah, if we joked around at all before like we got into the podcast, I put it there. If we joke around like after a pee break, it goes there. Yeah. Um, sometimes we didn't. We were real in and out. We didn't joke around at all. I mean, I'm sure we joked around during the episode, but oh. like in a way that I can't excise easily. Um, and then I will like find a funny YouTube video or something. And I'll, this is going to be funny when we get around to the end. Anyway. <laughs> um, and then I'll put that on there. Like one time I did like, we are showing you the inside of our TV. Oh, right. I don't even remember why. I don't know either. I remember because I was listening to that episode, which I don't always listen to stairwells. Sometimes I do, but not often. I listened to it. And then at some point I just, I, I like kind of spaced out. And then I just hear Bjork telling you about the inside of a TV. <laughs> Bjork. 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 Anyway. Jokes aside. We this, need to do the whole yes. spiel. No, no, I was doing this. I'm yeah. just fucking doing the spiel. It's an invitation to love fancast. This is this is ominous stairwells. A podcast about Twin Peaks. And if you I assume we might have some people who are jumping on for the first time here, which I think I would encourage you to go back and at least listen to the Eraserhead episode, but, like, I get it. Anyway. Yeah, like, Eraserhead up to here. The actual the actual thing is, if you are listening to this and you have not listened to Stairwells before, hi, hello, how are you? Here's how we structure this podcast. In the first segment of the show, we will talk about other movies we've watched. This week, it's only two movies. Sometimes it's 20 movies. Sometimes it is Tony movie. I sometimes watch a lot of movies, but instead this week I watched 13 episodes of the first Gundam. Sometimes I watch a lot of movies. Less often yeah. than you watch a lot of movies. But sometimes I have a job where I can watch a lot of movies. I do not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that'll be first segment. In the second segment, we are go- normally we talk about one movie that we watch together. Obviously this week we're pivoting toward talking about Twin Peaks. We will be talking about... Every episode of Twin Peaks, and this time we watched the pilot. Um, the premise of this show is, one, we are covering everything David Lynch. So we started with Eraserhead. We've watched all of his feature films before Twin Peaks. You know, between seasons one and two, we are going to be watching Wild at Heart. You know, one of these days we'll get to Inland Empire. We're doing the whole thing. And two... I'm even, like, hitting short films, which I forgot to watch. I should I should do the ones that oh. were in between... Yeah. Before you, next time. Especially because I watched it. And so I. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, two, this is a podcast for people who have already sen- seen Twin Peaks or I guess don't care. But in this first episode of talking about the pilot of Twin Peaks, we're going to talk about who killed Laura Palmer. I am going to talk about the last episode of Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah. There are things about Dale Cooper. <laughs> That I think like are a connected thread from this first episode to the very last episode, and I think those are interesting. I'm going to talk about them. So, if you don't want to know how Twin Peaks 
ends, if you don't want to know who killed Laura Palmer, if you don't want to know nothing, I would encourage you instead, go listen to Totally Reprise Has Always Been Cool. You can find it at audioentropy.com. That is a podcast hosted by uh, Luke, Ashley, and Molly. And they're like, uh, Ashley and Molly have never seen Twin Peaks before, and so they're going through it in like a spoiler-free way. They're just reacting to it moment to moment. And so I would encourage you, go listen to that. As we're recording this, they're getting pretty close to finishing up the return. Um, and so that'll be cool. And um, yeah, yeah so you can... even if you want to like marathon it and then... Yeah. Listen to us as we go or something. I don't know. Yeah. But like <clears throat> we're going to spoil Twin Peaks. So if you don't want if you don't want spoilers, after we finish talking about Near Dark here in a little bit, bail out because once we start talking about the pilot in earnest, all bets are off. I'm gonna give this little spiel at the beginning of every episode, but wanted to really belabor <clears throat> it at the start of this one. Yeah. Uh I also want to say totally reprise is great. I uh, am amazed at how well they can like oscillate between comedy and actual criticism. Yeah. Um, in a way that we will joke around too, but I feel like just not in the same like, just absolutely flipping on a dime. Yes. Like sort of within a sentence, it will turn from like actual serious, thoughtful criticism to jokey jokes. Yeah. Whereas it's really I good. will just sometimes goof off. Yeah. Often unrelated to whatever we're talking about. We, we go on tangents. They, they yeah. incorporate the tangents into the actual conversation. Yes. <laughs> um, but, and the vibe of it is like, it's kind of like you were actually sitting there watching the episode, like on yeah. a sofa with your friends and everyone's kind of joking, yeah. but also talking about what's happening while it's happening. Yeah. Um, and so I highly recommend it. But if you're like, I don't like friends or having fun, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you could also listen to. I normally I'm not going to promo them as much as we promo Totally Reprise, but um, Idle Thumbs did Twin Peaks rewatch. Um, I think it was like the second time mm-hmm. that I watched Twin Peaks when I the time that I watched through all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I listened to that along with it, and the way that they structure that is um, there's sort of a post. There's like a pre-ending theme where they it's spoiler-free, and then the post one is, um, you know, that's where they'll talk about spoilers until they get to the return when they were doing it as it was airing. Um, mm-hmm. The main advantage to that podcast is that they have a bunch of fans who are posting in a forum about weird Twin Peaks shit. Um, and so if you're into all the weird lore and how, like people read all the here's what's happening with numbers or whatever fucking shit people go on about into it. I'm not one of these people yeah. really. So uh, you're not going to get much of that here. I'm going to be talking about like there's images and vi- there's a little bit, but like, well, no, no, no. I was just, so we've also, because we're doing all of David Lynch, like we've been getting into a lot of supplementary stuff. You've been watching like, like a documentary about the making of blue velvet. And I've been reading a biography of David Lynch there's like a non-zero chance that I end up reading the secret history. I don't yeah. think it'll happen. But if if one of us is in danger of actually reading that shit, it's me. Yeah, but like I think like Jake or something had read it, and obviously yeah. fans who are writing into that podcast have read it and things. Yeah. So all that stuff like comes up more. But the vibes of it, I describe as uh, you're at work at like the water cooler or whatever the equivalent is at your workplace. Maybe it's the back room or whatever. Um. 
and it's people who you're kind of friendly with, but like you're like your coworkers. You're yeah. not friends. And you're like, oh, did you see that episode last night? Because it's back in the days where people would have those conversations. I feel like that's kind of yeah. fallen by the wayside. Yeah. Um, but, and then after the, the one is, and then you like go and you text with your one work friend about mm. like, oh, blah, blah, blah. You know. Yeah. Did you see this thing and how it connects to this other thing? Because we've already seen it, even though Dave hasn't or whatever. Yeah. You know, that's the vibe. Anyway. So if you don't like friends are fun, it's a good one. Last but not least, <laughs> if you're a longtime Stairwells fan, I'm sorry that you've heard us give this spiel six times now. I promise we're going to tighten it up for the rest of the series. Um, I just really wanted to hammer it home this time because I yeah. wanted to make sure that no one's jumping in and getting mad that we spoiled the ending of Twin Peaks. Yeah, I feel like people are less likely to jump in in like middle of Twin Peaks especially. So it'll yeah. probably be like... Hey, once we get to Twin Peaks, spoilers. Yeah. Brute. Yeah. Done. But if if you're a person who's seen Twin Peaks like four times and you don't really know stairwells at all, you just saw this retweeted into your timeline. Hi. Hello. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Before we get to that, Nia, tell me about Vampire's Kiss. Yeah. So I watched uh, two vampire movies from the Criterion Collection vampire section. I think both of these might also be in the 80s horror because they're both from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started watching Near Dark. And partway through, I think I posted about it or something, and then you were like, oh, I also watch that. Yeah. And then I remembered that you had posted about it, I'd just completely forgotten. So we'll both talk about Near Dark uh, after I talk about Vampire's Kiss, Um, although I watched these in reverse order. Um, Vampire's Kiss, so both of these, it's been a really long time since I watched them, Um, probably like high school or undergrad, uh, which is like over 10 years now. Yeah. For listeners who who are new here, um, Nia is fifty years old. So, I'm thirty four. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not a boomer yet. I'm a little bit of a boomer, but you're a boomer <laughs> in in your heart sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, I, I especially I'm, when I talk about the MCU, fuck the MCU. I think I'm more of a boomer in my heart. Do you think heart. that boomers actually like MCU? I feel like boomers might like the MCU. I don't know. I know that my parents don't, but like. I think my parents were kind of predisposed to hating the MCU because, like, I, as a young person, was really, really into the Marvel stuff. And um, my dad... Well, okay, let me say this in the least disparaging way possible. I think I was very enthusiastic about a lot of superhero movies, and I think my parents probably got pretty sick of it pretty early because they had a young child talking their ear off about, you know, that's Nick Fury. He was in this comic book and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know Emily's mom really likes the MCU. Yeah. But I mean, she really likes Star Wars and Star Trek and all that. Yeah. She's a nerd in that way. Mm -hmm. I say as a nerd. Um, Anyway. Vampire's Kiss. Uh, this is a movie that I, what I remember of it is is pretty true. Uh, but it's basically a um Nicolas Cage vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is both the best thing about it and the worst thing about it. Um, if you want to see Nicolas Cage acting just like very bizarre, mm-hmm. just like the most 
unhinged Nicolas Cage acting. If this is what you want out of a movie, Vampire's Kiss has it for you in spades. Mm -hmm. There's a part where he just jumps up on a desk and screams at someone. Um, However, there are like things that I think this movie is trying to do, but because you have Nicolas Cage acting in this way, it can only read as like a weird, absurd comedy. Uh-huh. And thus not have any of the time to actually dig into any of the other things that it seems to be trying to comment on. In a way that like there's some stuff that ended up making it feel super hollow to me. Um, but I'll go through the the basic plot of this, which is that Nicolas Cage plays some guy. I don't know his name. I mm-hmm. should I should like look this up just to get some of these names, but um it's Nicolas Cage. That's you, right. You look at him on the screen and you go, that's Nicolas Cage. <laughs> um, but he, he plays uh, Peter Lowe, who is a literary agent. Uh, this is the late 80s where being a literary agent means that you're a super rich yuppie um, <laughs> because books are still hot um, mm. in a way that they just aren't now. Um, and he's very greedy and narcissistic and um, basically, like, sadistic. Uh, there's this, um, like, Latina woman who works for him. Um, and he's just, like, terrorizing her at work. He's giving her meaningless tasks where the, the it's like to find some contract and the person who's talked about it was like, this doesn't matter. You, there's no rush, but he's still being like, Oh, it's a rush. You need to find it. Hmm. And like really pressuring her and, and basically just being an asshole to her. Um, she's the one that he jumps on the desk and screams at and things. Um, and he's seeing a therapist, uh, seems to be seeing a therapist about the fact that like, he will really desire some woman. And then as soon as they have sex, just like wants to try to get her to leave so that he doesn't have to be around her anymore. Um, and just trying to like, why is it that I like, can't settle down with anyone or whatever? Mm. Um, anyway. Um, so there is, uh, he takes home like some girl and there's a bat. Uh, and then he takes home another girl um, and she like pins him down and has like vampire fangs and then bites his neck. Um, this scene is a great scene. You're checking sports scores right now. I just wanted to know how the, the Warriors game went. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, I'm calling you out Nicol- on the podcast. Nicholas Cage is a dick to his secretary. Go on. Okay, um, there's other stuff I said, but for the listener's yes. purpose, I'm not going to repeat it. You'll just have to listen to this podcast. But <laughs> I wanted to so know he, how the Warriors game went. He takes this girl home, um, and she like like holds him down and has like sharp teeth and bites his neck. Uh-huh. Um, and he's all like, "Ah, no!" And then like as it goes on, it's just like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right, this is because there are lots of movies. We'll get to one. We'll get to one where people get bit, and they're like, "Oh no, don't do that to me!" And I'm like, "Pansy." We whereas Nicholas Cage, that. it happens, and then and at first he's like, "Ah," and then he's like, "Oh wait, no, this is good actually." And I'm like, "That's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> You're a convert." Um, anyway, 
when when he wakes up, um, he I think he's like, I think his neck is uninjured, but then he cuts himself shaving or something, mm. and then puts on like a bandaid on his neck. Um, after this like encounter, he he basically becomes convinced that he's turning into a vampire, um, and it just escalates where he's like. He he doesn't think he can see his reflection in mirrors. He starts wearing sunglasses all the time because uh, the light is too bright. Um, he's like scared and like running around when the sun's out. Um, he he goes and purchases like these cheap novelty vampire teeth mm-hmm. and puts them on. Um, all of this throughout all of this is continuing to torment Alva, the the person at his office. And it escalates to him being like, I'm a vampire. Oh, she is like, I need to defend myself because my boss is just like fucking unhinged and is like threatening me and stuff. And so goes to her brother uh, and gets a, like, she has a pistol, but she doesn't have any bullets for it. And he's like, we don't like actually keep bullets in the store. We have blanks because usually you just like fire it at the ground and it will scare people off. Uh, and she's like, well, give me some blanks. And she, so she puts blanks in it. <clears throat> anyway, there's this whole thing where it like escalates. He chases her like down a bunch of stairs, stairs. Oh, there's also <laughs> a part where, um, hallucination dream actually happening. Who knows? But the vampire lady comes and also carries him up a bunch of stairs, like picks him up and carries him up to his room again. Um, after like their first encounter. Uh, so great stairs in this movie. I will say that. But basically, he chases her down and then, like, sexually assaults her, being like, I'm a vampire, like, you know, I have to, like, feed or whatever. Um, And then, like, you need to put me out of my misery or whatever. And she's, like, trying to fire at the ground because it's blanks. But he's like, no, you have to shoot me. And so he takes it and puts it in his mouth, but it's a blank. And so he thinks that he's immortal. (laughs) Because he fires it, but it doesn't kill him. Anyway, like, this is stuff where, like, it is... It works as a weird, absurd comedy, uh-huh. but also it's around this like sexual assault scene. And I think part of what this is trying to do, but it would be done better if it wasn't just such a vehicle for seeing Nicolas Cage act like really bizarrely on screen. Mm. And the big thing is it then, as the movie goes on, confirms that he is like having a mental breakdown. And so you see him like poor in the street, uh, people walking around him confused standing in the street having a conversation and then you see his like dream hallucination of he's talking to his therapist and being like oh i'm a vampire oh that just don't worry about it oh because i'm a vampire i murdered this woman in the club oh happens to the best of us like the police haven't found you yet so like why should i be worried (laughs) you know um and i think especially because it confirms that he is having these hallucinations. I think that it works like it doesn't work nearly as well as a movie about some of the stuff that it seems to be trying to do with Alva, which is that with Alva and with the way that he's behaving in the office, I think it the movie would work better if it is like these rich white men are allowed to be extremely threatening and unhinged and like terrifying to the people around them in such a way that he could believe himself to be a vampire and nothing would challenge that notion because being a white man who holds power over like women of color in an office Mm -hmm. means that you functionally have the powers in society of a vampire. Right. In today's, as like an 80s society, like Wall Street society or whatever, 
this man of fun- like functionally has the powers of a vampire in that he can like hold this power that he can you know do like have a, a sexual assault you can sexually assault an employee and probably get away with it um i'm not going to spoil the ending of it and this he doesn't but um but because it is specifically around him being like confirmed to be mentally ill in a way where he's like now to society, obviously in the streets, just like talking to no one. Uh huh. It cheapens that because if it was about this man just continues to exist, believing that he's a vampire because nothing is going to challenge him. I think that's like a better, what this movie is trying to say in terms of all of its themes. Mm hmm. But instead, it's just functioning as this weird comedy about this, like, rich asshole who thinks that he's a vampire and then dies at the end in a fittingly vampire way. Okay. Yeah. This guy sounds awful. Yeah, he sucks a lot. It's a, like, it's also an uncomfortable movie to watch just because I think there are some, it is trying to grapple with, like, there are moments where it is trying to show you Alva, like, struggling with the fact that she was assaulted Uh at work. And trying to deal with that. But she's never properly given the space because the camera has to be on the biggest person in the room, which is yeah, Nicolas Cage being weird. Yeah. And so the movie itself, and there are ways that you could do this, interestingly, that would also comment on things. But it's so just like concerned about showing you Nicolas Cage being weird that I feel like it it does a disservice to some of these plot lines. Yeah. Especially around Alva. I can very easily imagine how he just sort of, like, capsizes the movie. Yeah, the movie is just, like, if you don't like seeing Nicolas Cage act just completely, like, bizarre, don't watch this movie. If you do, Face Off, he's not quite as, like, weird in Face Off, but it is a better movie. I think this is reminding me a lot of, like, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans, which is a movie... Where Nicolas Cage is a big fucking weirdo, but, like, you've got... He's being directed by Werner Herzog, who, like, has dealt with much bigger weirdos in his day. Nicolas Nicolas Cage cannot hold a candle to some of the weirdos that Herzog has had to direct in the past. And so, like, Herzog is able to direct it not in the sense of, like, he controls Cage, but in the sense of, like, I will take the chaos of Nicolas Cage, and I will, like point it in a direction thematically that it seems like maybe this movie, because Cage is so young, the director maybe couldn't have been prepared for how much Cage brings to the movie. Yeah, maybe some of that is like, this is an early role for him. Yeah. And so wasn't quite prepared for like, what is Nicolas Cage role going to be? Yes. Herzog is making it like, people like, people who behave like Nicolas Cage behaves in movies are like the sickness in society. Like, that's what that movie's kind of about a little yeah. bit. And this movie is also trying to do it, but it it can't like the Nicolas Cage of it gets away from it. Yeah. And it become it it becomes so much about just enjoying seeing Nicolas Cage be weird and like uncomfortable and and bizarre on screen that you then lose the actual interesting thematic part of like why this kind of person is allowed to exist in society, is allowed to hurt people in society, that the movie is trying to say, but it, like, loses sight of. Um, And I don't know exactly at what point that happened, but... 
it is, it is like very uneven in terms of like, I wish that it was cut differently so that Nicholas, so that more screen time is given to other characters who are having to like deal with Nicholas Cage. I wish they removed the part that like fully just confir- confirms, Oh, he's just like gone insane and is now just like a weird homeless man in the street because that is taking away from this thematic thing that you're trying to say about how these people are allowed to exist in society. Mm. You are now putting it in. Ah, now he's like the, the weird person who just needs help on the street. And I'm like, those people can be scary and threatening to people and also hard to deal with. Mm. But that's such a different thing to be talking about than this movie started with. This man is allowed to be like extremely, extremely threatening and horrifying. And his behaviors are obvious to everyone around as being like really over the top and intense. Uh But because he is a white, he's a witch, a rich white man who is the boss. Yeah. The other rich white men who are bosses in that, office are going to joke around and be like, oh, you were a little hard on Alva today, huh? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, nobody's really going to, to challenge that. Yeah. Um, And I think it, if it was just more concerned with that, you could still get the weird David Lynch, or not David, the weird uh, Nicolas Cage acting, mm-hmm. but, like, channel it into something a little bit more. I'm interesting for when we, when we see... Because I've never seen Lynch directing Nicolas Cage, but I feel yeah, like he'll also know. I've never seen Wild Heart. Yeah. I have no idea how that's going to go. Yeah. But I feel like David Lynch is somebody who might understand how to use oh, yeah. Cage a little more, too. I, I, So I have continued to read that biography of David Lynch this week. I, The more I read of it, the more I just do not... I do not care for this book. I, th- I think yeah. it is, at best, a wikipedia entry you know um and all the ways that like a wikipedia entry will sort of like tacitly engage in hagiography without really like being critical about it in any way and just sort of like list facts that most people know like there's not that that biography is like obviously well researched but like the research doesn't get you anything yeah um anyway And, and and all the the David Lynch memoir sections are clearly just either him just sitting there shooting the breeze or selling TM as like a product, you know. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Oh, I do. Can I, I, I can I quick wrap up uh, Vampire's Kiss and just say S the stairs where she's carrying him up is mm-hmm. great, and also the chasing down. Alva is like an important stairwell scene for the movie. Yes. Even if the movie doesn't fully know what to do with it. I realized why I brought that up, which is just that like the one thing that I do believe about this book is that like anytime David Lynch is mentioned as like, it talks about his process of working with actors. That is like clearly like his biggest passion in directing films. And like literally every actor is like just glowing with like positive things to say about him. So I'm really interested to see how he like handles a talent like cage, you know? Yeah. Cause that is like a unique project <clears throat> for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, should we talk about near dark? Yeah. Um, so this is the year before it's another vampire slash eighties movie. Yeah. This is, um, Another De Laurentiis movie, contemporary to um, uh, oh, yeah. Blue Velvet. Um, 
the both of these movies too are on the divide that I've sometimes heard people talk about of and of course <clears throat> we're skipping I think like Chicago Vampire would fall into New York Vampire in this divide, but there's like the New York Vampire and the California Vampire. Yeah. And the New York Vampire is about like being in the city, dark streets, uh like dark city streets at <clears throat> um big fancy uh-huh. homes, things like that. Uh, you know, the wow, how can you afford this sort of apartment in New York? <clears throat> that vibe. The Hunger. Mm-hmm. Near Dark, California Vampire. There's a lot more like moving around transient spaces. Yes. Things like that. Um So, Near Dark, directed by one of the one of the earliest movies from Catherine Bigelow. Um now most famous for The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Um, but this is like a very early film for her. Um, <clears throat> might be her first, but I didn't look, so I'm not going to say that for certain. Because she very well could have directed four movies before this, and I yeah. genuinely have no idea. Anyway, um, De Laurentiis movie. Um, there is a main guy who I should... We should get a name for either him or his actor, because Lord have mercy. I Caleb? Caleb. Yeah, Caleb. And then the the his love interest is May. I remembered that one weirdly. Yeah. Um so <clears throat> Caleb is this small town, just a good old boy. Um mm-hmm. and he meets this girl May. She's kind of like a she's like she is like the 80s equivalent of like an alt girl, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they like meet um and <clears throat> She, they go on a date and she starts acting kind of weird and he's being really pushy with her, I think, um, like sexually. Um, yeah, she, <clears throat> the sun is coming up and she's like, you have to drive me home. Yes. <clears throat> also, sorry, one, two, um, an arboretum today and it's, there's just so many plans that I think I got pollen and it's yeah. aggravating my uh, asthma and I have cough, cough variants. So sorry that I keep coughing on this podcast. But anyway, um... So, Caleb and May are on this date. She really wants to go home because um, uh, it, the sun's coming up, and she's she's very obviously a vampire. That is like yeah. super obvious here. the The movie is like playing it close to the chest in like a good, like good way, but is like super obvious that she's a vampire. She wants to go home. Yeah, before the sun rises, and so. But he's like, you have to give me a kiss first before I'll like drive you home. And she ends up biting him, basically. Mm-hmm. But, like, y- you know, the kind of Buffy rules. What it's supposed to be is that if you bite, but you don't kill him, he's gonna become a vampire. But then he has to drink her blood back to really like complete the process, basically. So she takes him back to. He's like half vampire and he's having a hard time because he gets out in the sun and that's bad, bad way for him to be. Yeah. A great detail. This hasn't come up yet, but just like, I'm going to mention it now because I don't know if we'll think of it later, but is the, when the vampire squad is like driving around, because we're going to encounter a squad of vampires. Yeah. Uh, they just like have blankets on them in the car. Yeah. I'm just like, why don't you just have like more tinted windows or something? It's weird. (laughs) So, so... She takes <clears throat> Caleb back to her little vampire family, and they're like, 
we don't want another person here. We had a good thing going. We don't want another person. Let's kill him. And she convinces him, like, give him a week. See if he'll fit in with us. And um, if he doesn't, we'll kill him. But I want to, like, you know, try to make this work. So, <clears throat> also, important to note is that... um. This is so fucking funny. So he's back at his... Caleb is back at his home. Pre-vampire. Okay. He's bit. He goes home. She goes back to her little vampire family and they talk about it. And basically they decide, well, we have to go get that guy because he's like half vampire right now. We don't want him blowing up our spot. So they just like pull up on dude and kidnap him while his dad is watching yeah, <laughs> and drive away, which launches like what will become the B plot of the movie is like, we'll periodically cut away to like uh, Caleb's dad and younger sister just like out there looking for him yeah. because they're like, oh, my God, our son got kidnapped. Like, oh, my God, my son got kidnapped in front of me. <laughs> yeah. So. Dad goes looking. That's kind of a B-plot. It'll come up later. Meanwhile, Caleb is getting initiated into this vampire world, and he doesn't want to kill people, basically. He just is too morally troubled by the violence. He won't do it. Um, And May is, like, trying to push him into killing people. He won't do it. Um. Meanwhile, Lance Henriksen and, um, oh, there was a, a surprise. The other, Bill Paxton was the other one. Yeah. Surprisingly, like, I don't know that they were famous then, but are famous now. Like, <clears throat> surprisingly, like, well-known cast here. Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton and sort of the mom figure vampire and the, like, there's like a nine-year-old who's been a vampire for like a hundred years, kind of an interview with a vampire situation. Um, they're just like, we just got to kill this guy. Eventually they're like, I know what we're going to do. We're going to take him to a bar and we're going to put him into a situation where he has to kill people. So they go to this bar. There's like six humans in the bar and they just cause mayhem basically. Like they just kill these people in the most like goriest, bloodiest over the top fashion and it's not just like we're killing them it's like we're scaring them we're like giving them a whole monologue we're making we're making sure the others watch while we kill the first one the whole nine yards just as like a thing to watch this is a great scene it's electric it's fucking great um i thought about something that's more like overall thoughts on the movie i'm just going to continue with plot summary stuff for right now so Basically, they're like, all right, Caleb, this one's for you. And he lets the guy go. And that just like basically everything falls apart from there because they're like, well, that guy is going to tell the police. Now the police are chasing after him. Um, And Caleb, like, there's a big shootout and Caleb saves everybody's ass. So they like kind of bring him back into the fold, but he still won't kill people. And then the dad finds them um, and they're like, well, now we got to kill your dad and your little sister. Um and he runs away with his dad and his little sister, and the vampires are pissed off. They're trying to find him now. Um, as they run away, the dad gives Caleb a blood transfusion, which turns him human again. Um, yeah. And so Caleb is now... And at this moment, I was like, 
because it's been a while since I've seen this movie. I was yeah. like, I remember blood transfusions being a thing here, and I think it was just like, is it is it because it was like so early? Mm-hmm. You know, his body hasn't fully acclimated to the vampire yeah. blood. But what's actually going to be asserted by this movie is that basically any vampire could be cured by a, a blood transfusion and just be human again. So, gets, <clears throat> which is just a weird bit of vampire lore for this movie to introduce, but. He gets his blood transfusion. He turns human. May catches up with them. Well, so the vampires in general catch up with Caleb. And May approaches him and is like, hey, you know about us. I'll turn you. I'll, like, come back to us. Because she thinks he's still a vampire at first. And she's like, come back to us. You know, all we have to do is, like, kill your kill your dad and your sister. Or one of the people in the vampire squad wants to turn his little sister too. That's not super relevant. Um, she like sort of gives him a last chance and he's like, no, I'm human now. And then Lance Henriksen is like, well, I guess we have to kill all of you. And then we get another sick ass sequence of like, you know, gradually like so Bill Paxton character Severin, he's been like, He's so good in this movie. And he's been the most violent and over-the-top one of all, and Caleb is eventually able to kill him, and then he's going to kill the... Um, he explodes a little... The nine-year-old vampire. Yeah, the nine-year-old explodes. It's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, and eventually he ends up killing Lance Henriksen and Lance Henriksen's wife, and it's a The, whole... the nine-year-old... Ex- by the way, the nine-year-old explodes just from having too much sunlight on him. Yes, basically he gets caught out in the sun and explodes. Yeah, they like start sizzling and then just like explode at a certain point. It's fucking sick. <clears throat> yeah. Also, all through this movie, because this nine-year-old is like 100 years old, so that this nine-year-old spends so much of this movie drinking, shooting, and uh, sh- drinking, smoking, and shooting guns. It's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> there are so many shots of this child smoking that I'm just like... Who let this happen? Big, big, uh, hopefully it was like a actor cigarette or something, but hopefully <clears throat> anyway, um, big chess love Meyer vibes. Yeah. Of just like <laughs> if you give me <clears throat> a shitty little kid who's actually super old, uh, because of like weird immortality rules, um, I'm just going to be so happy when that, ki- when that kid dies. Yeah. In a way that, like, if you normally kill the kid in a movie, I'd be like, that was kind of fucked up. Yeah. Whereas but... here, I'm like, well, you established that he's like 100 years old, so. He's Eat like a shit little kid. He's This nine year old, like, has murdered multiple people in, like, extremely brutal fashion. So it's, like, kind of cathartic to see this nine year old explode eventually. Anyway, Caleb is able to defeat the whole vampire clan. Caleb by himself kills all these vampires whereas it took like a whole squad of police like shooting these people and the the police fucking ate shit the police did not win that gunfight yeah <laughs> anyway um and Caleb is gives May a blood transfusion and it's all very sweet um and so also, it's very heteronormativity sweet. has been restored. Yes, it's very sweet and heteronormative, <clears throat> and like a little bit ambiguous of like, oh, what are we gonna do now? Because I did just kill your whole family, um, but you know, it heteronormativity has been restored. Cut to credits, basically. Yeah. So, 
I thought this movie was going to be like from dusk till dawn, basically. My understanding of this movie through like cultural osmosis was more or less that the bar scene is like the whole movie. Um, and there's a lot of this movie that is like the bar scene. Yeah. But there is a, like an equivalent amount that is like Twilight-esque vampire romance between Caleb and May. Yeah. And it's weird. <laughs> I like both of those different aspects of the movie. I like, I think Catherine Bigelow balances those two tones in a really impressive way. But also it's like, <laughs> it's weird to just only know this movie for like the Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen part. And just like, there is an equal part of this movie that it has nothing to do with them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that is like, weirdly concerned <clears throat> with, with like, uh, redeeming or, or like making straight the vampire. Yes. So I, in a way where this is not a movie where the vampires are particularly queer coded. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just like weird and, uh, aggra- like the most is the, and this is the, a term that in other, uh, I think like Tokyo Godfathers is a good example. We've kind of talked about <clears throat> found, like found family is over applied or like over conceived uh-huh. of as just being like intrinsically a good thing. Yes. But like, this is kind of a found family going around. That's like the most to which like queerness is really appearing here. Other than this other just theme of like, you are, you are not of your family anymore. You have to like leave. I am a, I am a huge, tremendous fan of Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot is like one of my favorite novels, period. Yeah. Salem's Lot is also a novel about how the gays are going to kidnap your children and give them AIDS. Yeah. And this movie, I think, is heavily inspired by Salem's Lot and sort of, like, takes that baggage with it without really, like... There's, like, cultural assumptions that go into this movie that I think maybe this movie is yeah. not super aware of. Like, around the blood transfusion, around the, like... Like, still the vampires are functioning in a way that some of the queerness that has been read into the vampire mythos that has been developed into it over time is present here, but in a way where, like, none of it is being actually addressed by what the film is, no character is queer-coded in this. Yes. Um, There isn't anything that's, like, really specifically talking about those things. Yeah. It is merely pulling from a a genre, and a genre that, at this point, Queerness is still in here. I've, yes. I've talked previously about, you know, other vampire movies that I've watched in this collection that I think have a, there's something more queer happening there. But also, like, I think there's critical work that happened after this film that further developed that understanding. Right. Um. So I don't want to, like, fully be like, oh, like, it was present there, but I don't know exactly how much it was, like, developed into a specific reading people have of vampires. Yeah. This movie feels like if you if this was the only vampire thing that you'd ever seen, I don't think you could necessarily take a lot of these things as queer, necessarily. <clears throat> but... All the things that it is, like, very obviously inspired by, like, have that queer element to them to where the the 
blood transfusion stuff ends up having a really weird message to it, you know, yeah. in a way that like, like Salem's Lot is explicit, like as direct as you can be a novel about like gay people will kidnap your children and give them AIDS. So when you, when you take the, that is such a clear inspiration in this movie and you kind of take that and you, you cut all that out, but then you still make the plot line about, you you restore heteronormativity in the end, and that is the good ending. And you do it through blood transfusions. And you do it through blood transfusions, and you do it through, I killed all those gay people that kidnapped you. You know, it's weird. It's a yeah. weird thing that's happening there, yeah. thematically. And the movie is like just not, that's not in like the movie's thought process in any way. <laughs> yeah. This movie does remind me a lot of Twilight having somewhat recently watched through all of Twilight. I was, I was shocked how much Twilight was in the May and Caleb stuff. Yeah. It's it's like it's like very like a direct lineage from this movie to what Twilight yeah. is. But I think that what we're talking about as a weirdness in this is this still like process of trying to like this is far more uh in the actual telling of it, in the watching of it, trying to make straight the vampire. Uh-huh. Whereas Twilight is also doing this, but in a way where it has, like, succeeded far more. Yes. Um, And it and it is it has done it partially through something that this is not done. And I think it's why Twilight is so much better at just being incredibly straight, like, yeah. romance. Despite being a thing about, like, family and blah, blah, blah. Which is that, like... Twilight very intentionally separates out the sex from the the blood drinking and the mm-hmm. vampire and all of that. Whereas the, those are like clearly demarcated things within Twilight. Whereas in Near Dark, like the scenes of him on his knees, like biting her wrist to to drink her blood, they're really horny. Yeah, real horny. They're re- as they're... someone who likes the blood horny part of vampire stuff, this movie did deliver in the beginning at least. Yeah. So that was <laughs> that was the other thing that just really shocked me. Was that I turned this on thinking I was getting from dusk till dawn, right? There, w- I just thought of there was one thing that was I felt like particularly like touching on in a more intentional way. Okay, a queer thing. Okay, which is when um, I think it might be Bill Paxton's character. There's a character who's going to go drink from oh, someone yeah. in the, the bar and is like, oh, I hate when they're unshaving because he's not gonna like drink from a, a guy's uh-huh. neck. Yeah. Um, and I was like, that's a little gay. Yeah. This is a little gay right here. There, so so yeah. So like, <clears throat> I turn this on thinking I'm just getting a vampire action movie, yeah. right? And and what this movie is is it's like the the two things, right? And so I was shocked how much the blood drinking scenes are just sex scenes. Like they're yeah. literally just sex scenes. Like. In, like, affectationally, like, how those things are shot, like, that is what is happening there. Which then leads to, there are many scenes of men drinking other men's blood. There's really no girl-on-girl blood drinking. There is a lot of men-on-men blood drinking. But then it's like, I can't tell, like, I think the dot, I think these two dots are being connected. Of Like, we made, we we had men-on-men, and we had... Blood drinking is sex, and I think those two things are being connected, but I can't 
always yeah. tell. But they know? don't do the the drinking men on men blood drinking in the same horny way. Yeah. But still because they've done that and because I think the most is that one comment of like, oh, I hate when they're unshaved or whatever. Uh-huh. Um But it's also weird because like the the because so, specifically like commenting on the the body of the person who you're about to drink is that's like pushing it more into a gay territory, right? Which it is also like interesting, and I think I think that's probably just like a gag in the movie, you know, it's yeah. just a funny bit, but it's kind of funny because literally in that scene it is established he doesn't have to like he does not have to drink the blood straight from dude's neck. In that scene, you see Lance Henriksen kill a dude, fill up like a glass with blood, and drink from the glass. So Bill Paxton does not have to press his like teeth up against the unshaven neck. So I think Bill Ta- Bill Paxton is doing a no homo here. I think he's doing a like, oh, I hate w- I hate kissing dudes. Too bad I gotta kiss dudes all the time. Oh, oh I hate the feeling of stubble against my lips. Oh. <laughs> Why do I keep kissing guys with stubble? Ha ha. <laughs> no homo, though. No homo. This is just a movie about a bunch of gay vampires who are just constantly going around being like, no homo, though. No homo. No homo. This um, is this is very much a boys' night vampire. Oh movie. yeah, yeah. the The best part of this is just like, I I enjoyed this whole movie, but absolutely the best part is like Lance Henriksen, the nine year old. Well, really, all of them. Um, just being like, we're gonna go to this bar and have boys' night, and everybody just gets in on the fun. The nine year olds killing people. Bill Paxton's killing people. Lance Henriksen. Everybody. It's kind of disappointing that the, the like, mom of the vampire clan is... I think she's, like, the least interesting character here. Yeah, I barely remember. Yeah. She's got a cool vibe, but yeah. she just doesn't get as much fun stuff to do as the others do. And maybe it's because she's, like, a... Maybe her stuff doesn't stick out to me because I l- recognize Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton from other movies. But and I, it's just I, funny to see a kid smoking and shooting yeah. people. But I also i I don't think it is just the star power of those actors. I think it is just that she's given less stuff to do. Yeah. Um. She does throw a knife in one scene, which is pretty fun. She's also oh, yeah. like, she's also like not fully like committed or something because she does have a moment. Because she's, like, more about this life than most. But she does cl- have, like, moral qualms about killing a ni- another nine-year-old, I think. Because because yeah. basically, the nine-year-old vampire wants to turn Caleb's little sister, right? And she is, like, stops that from happening, right? And so it's, like, yeah. uh, weird what's happening there. Also, like, Lance Henriksen's character is a confederate, <laughs> And I feel like this is adding some other layer to, like, how awful and shitty these vampires are, but I don't think it goes anywhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Specifically says, fought for the South. Yeah. Uh, and also suggested you have started the Great Chicago Fire, which, it's been long enough, I can do this joke. Uh, thank you for that. They redesigned the city, and it's it's so much better now. <laughs> 
I don't know if people know this, but the Chicago fire, because it burned a bunch of stuff down. Uh, one, we got a bunch of the artery streets that are, are now really wide and good for having multiple cars on because there was like regulations of every so often you can't have them too close because we don't want them to like, we want it to still be contained within like a fairly like mm-hmm. area. So we don't want too much overhang. So you have to have these wide streets periodically. And those became like major arteries in the city. And also because they were doing it, they were then able to more intentionally cars existed, I think, or were starting to, or they were starting to think about this stuff more, at least maybe cars didn't exist. It was 1871. Cars didn't exist. No, no, that was 1900s. Um, but we still got like some nicer car roads from this. Also, then we got a grid. Um, and then independently of it, after they built the grid, there was a, a delivery man who was like the streets in this city fucking suck. Like the names of them suck. You should do this system where like all of the numbers are like in line. Hmm. You don't have any, like you don't have uh Michigan Avenue and Michigan street. Right. It's just Michigan, and then who cares what it says afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. All of that was from that delivery guy being like, you need to design it so that people can fucking find the place that they're trying to go to. <laughs> Do you know how many times they've gone to the street instead of the avenue or whatever? Right. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Trying to think of other near-dark stuff I wanted to talk about. I feel like we hit most of it. Um. It, it is, like, just experientially for me. Watching this movie, I kind of knew what I was getting into watching a vampire movie from the 80s. Mm-hmm. There's still a little moment when I got to the end of it and I was like, oh, you're just going to reinscribe heterosexuality? Yeah. <laughs> and like, <laughs> what a disappointment. I was having so much fun. <laughs> I know. That was that was my thing. So I <clears throat> I was watching this movie and I, I was not fully in the headspace of like, what is an 80s filmmaker going to do with this? And so I thought this was going to be like, uh, or I guess I was, but I was in the wrong type of headspace. Because if this is like a, a Sam Raimi movie from the same year, Sam Raimi's making the movie where Caleb becomes the vampire and he has like a day or two where he's like, I don't know about killing. This is a little messed up. And then he leans in and then he gets really into the murder. And he becomes the Bill Paxton character, you know? Yeah. And that's what I was expecting and wanting. And instead, this movie is like, oh, I thought I was gay for a day, but then I quit. I The, the movie just so clearly sets up the character conflict as he has to learn to kill people and then just shies away from that into, oh, he has to fix vampirism. Yeah. <laughs> And I thought this was going to be a movie where he learns that killing people is sick as hell. And I was sitting there watching it thinking, if I were turned into a vampire, I would have no compunctions about murdering people. I would get over it like that. I just thought of the sequel to this movie where uh, it picks up and May's like, you killed like my entire family and it ruled being a vampire. Yeah, I miss being a vampire. And then it just becomes Caleb trying to be like, no, be straight with me. And she like tries to find some vampire to, to yeah. make her into a vampire again. Yeah. That'd be a fun movie. That'd be a fun movie. I'm sure it would still end with her coming around and deciding that it's great being human now. And mm-hmm. that she loves Caleb, her straight boyfriend. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, I guess that does it for Near Dark, except we have to rate the stairs. 
How are the stairs? <laughs> I don't remember any. I We were talking about this before the show. I think this is one of those like American Southwest movies that just don't have stairs in them. Yeah. I'll do an F with a question mark because yeah. maybe there was a... a... You're regretting having the I... Icelandic keyboard all no, of a sudden. I... Ha-ha. All the what times is... I've teased you what for... Is going... Okay. I, all the times I've teased you for having the Icelandic keyboard where I can't find any of the symbols. Normally I can and there's just, I don't know why I couldn't find Brain the fart. question mark. Yeah. Anyway, now, 90 minutes into this podcast, let's talk about well, sort of. Not even an hour into this podcast. Let's talk about Twin Peaks. So once again, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to belabor it this time, but if you don't want to have Twin Peaks spoiled for you, GTFO, spoilers start now and go to the end of the podcast. We'll catch you next time. With all that... Some background, I guess. Twin Peaks is a show created by David Lynch and Mark Frost. Uh, it debuted in 1990 and ended in 1991 until it was revived 25 years later. That'll we'll cover that when we get there. Um, Laura Palmer was the prom queen in the little sleepy town in Oregon. Or Washington. Does it matter? No. Pacific Northwest. Somewhere that has Douglas furs. (laughs) Yes. Laura Palmer is the uh, prom queen of this sleepy little town, and she is found one day uh, dead, wrapped in plastic. Um, The police of this town go to investigate, um, and are sort of stumped about what to do. Some hours later, a young woman named Ronette, Ronette Pulaski um, turns up across state lines. So, like, maybe the Twin Peaks is in Oregon and over in Washington, Ro- Ronette Pulaski turns up. Ronette is also a student um, at the high school This in says Twin, Twin Peaks. Peaks is in Washington. So, Twin Peaks is in Washington. She shows up in Oregon, um, and this gets the FBI involved, basically. Um, Because now she's it's been across state lines. And so the FBI sends special agent Dale Cooper, played by our boy, Cale McLaughlin. Um, (laughs) He's going to meet this kooky cast of characters and he's going to solve the murder. And uh... and what are those trees? What I just got to know. I just got to know. Also, this episode has sort of a B plot about um, Audrey Horn daughter of local business magnate uh, Richard Horn. Um, Richard is trying to make a big deal um, to sell the Ghostwood Estates to the Norwegians. Audrey messes up that deal. Also, we're introduced to a plot line that will come up a bunch more later about, like, basically Richard Horn doesn't actually own the land he's trying to sell, but he has, like, a scheme to get that land out from under Josie Packard who is another like character that we'll meet and talk about more. Did you know that uh, in Sweden, the Swedish chef people think sounds like he's Norwegian because the te- the sounds that he's making are actually more Norwegian than Swedish? I did not know that. I did know that um, most of the Nor- Norwegians in this episode did kind of sound like the Swedish chef to me. Yeah. Bork, bork, bork. <laughs> <laughs> Nia, what did you think this time? 
so obviously you've watched Twin Peaks before. I've watched Twin Peaks before. Yeah, so I... This is your fourth time watching this pilot, yes. right? So the just to run through, I, I know I've said this on other podcasts, but this is probably the best one to really get it in. Um, the first time that I watched through Twin Peaks... Uh, I did not make it all the way through season two because I was weak and foolish. I was a child <laughs> at the time. Um, I got to Who Killed Laura Palmer, and I think I fell off not too long after that. Like, once, like, Wyndham Earl started spinning up, I was out. To Which, be Wyndham the- Earl kind of... <laughs> I kind of like some of the Wyndham Earl stuff now, though. <laughs> I said Season two is so good. I said to you... When, um, oh God, I didn't talk about Bobby at all. And Bobby is the star of this episode. Yeah. Um, let me finish my little thing. And you can oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, second time through was maybe undergrad or something. There was a part where I was like, people talk about Twin Peaks. I want to actually watch through Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sat down and I, I made it through. I, by then I'd seen some list of like, here are the episodes to skip in season two. I didn't skip them. But, like, knowing the ones that people say are the worst to drag also kind of helped me be like, oh, had, people say, like, the end is still really good and all, you know. I had the same thing. Yeah. I had, like, more of a thing. And then sitting through it that way, there's still a f- there's, like, one or two episodes that kind of suck still in, yeah. in season two. But that helped. Um, it left me a little bit more open because I would go into an episode being like, this episode's going to suck. And then I would still find some things that I liked. Uh, and then the third time I watched... The second time I watched through all of it, the third time I watched through like the pilot and stuff, um, is I showed Twin Peaks to Emily, mm-hmm. um, and we watched through. And this was this was right around when the return had come out, um, but had not. I think it was fully out at that point. It's not like when it was airing, and I was like, "Oh, I should watch the return." Um, and so we watched through all of it. We got to the return, which was going to be new for me. We watched the first episode, and she was like, that was too fucking scary. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just watch this on, in your free time. But a lot of my free time for watching is when I bike when I'm at work, and that's 45 minutes. Yeah. So I couldn't watch an hour long, and so I just never did. I, like, enough time passed that I fell off of it. Yeah. Um. <sighs> I have now watched through the return only Mm. people can listen to it in whatever. If you go look at their, if you go look to export odd.io slash stairwell quality, you'll see that Nia talked about the return some number of weeks ago. Yeah. We put all of it in the, uh, post. Yeah. Like after Bella Lugosi's dead, the the non homophobic zone. Yeah. Um, so I watched basically, this is this was my second time watching the pilot. I um watched through I was watching season 1 as the return was airing, season 1 and season 2 as the return was airing. I think I was like watching Firewalk with me as the very last episode of the return was on TV and then like took like basically a week off and I watched all of the return over a 3-day weekend. So I actually this was this is my first time seeing the pilot um with the full context of what Twin Peaks is. And I think this pilot is really interesting. There's a lot of things that make this interesting. One, like Lynch and Frost don't know who the killer is, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and and there's 
and this, much like Mulholland Drive later, like, and we'll eventually talk about the international pilot. The the network is like, hey, we want you to shoot this like a pilot, but we also want you to make an ending for it so that if we decide not to pick it up, you can release it as a film, basically. And so I think that leads to this being a really interesting like tonal piece. Um, and the way it fits into like Lynch's filmography to this point is really interesting. Um, and I was noticing like, oh, I really appreciate that aspect of it a lot more. Whereas the first time I'm just like, there is the first time through this show, I'm watching the pilot and it just feels like I'm getting like so much information. Like I just have to keep all these characters in my head and all these like feelings this time knowing like what all this is leading to, I was much more just able to take this in sort of as like a David Lynch movie, quote unquote, unto itself. Um, and I think it worked. I think this is a fantastic pilot for like getting you into what the show is. Obviously it was, this was like an enormous success, like an unprecedented success. This, this episode single-handedly changed yeah. the history of television. Uh, you know. This episode, when it aired on TV for the very first time, more people watched it that time than have ever read a Homestuck. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that. <laughs> I did look that up once. <laughs> the, and think of all the people who watched it after. I didn't watch it when it aired. <clears throat> you didn't watch it when it aired. This, so yeah, this this show, like, or this pilot is like, it mo- monumental in the history of television. Yeah. Um and I think it really functions great as a pilot, but this time through I was more appreciating it as like I'm just watching a David Lynch movie, you know? Yeah. Kinda. And I I I appreciate it in that sense a little more than I appreciate it as a like the setup to what Twin Peaks is. Yeah. Cuz I I also whatever, I'll let you talk. <laughs> Well, the thing I was gonna say, watching it, because the all the other times that I have watched Twin Peaks has been, it is not a project like this where we're going to watch it every week. Mm-hmm. It has been I'm watching it on streaming or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sitting down and I'm watching Twin Peaks. Yeah, and so I will watch a few episodes at a time. Mm-hmm. In my memory, so much of this movie is what like the. The first half, or so much of this episode, which is a movie length episode, kind of is a movie. Yeah, that's the other thing is is that this is a 90 minute episode. Is what is happening in the the first half, which is Laura Palmer's dead. You get that right. You get Josie. You get Pete going out, finding the body. Laura Palmer's dead. He even says, oh, Laura Palmer or whatever. Right. And you. uh, This is an interesting thing. Pete sees the body he calls the sheriff's office and says and what he says is she's dead wrapped in plastic yeah truman says where truman does not ask who no one they so there there is a little bit of a like oh i wonder who it is we're going to turn the body over and see who it is that is an element to it but like so much of like so much of like the rest of Twin Peaks and also this episode specifically is going to hinge on like there was an inevitability to 
Laura Palmer's death. Laura Palmer's death was just like written into stone and everybody knew it was going to happen. Like Bobby's going to say that in two episodes or whatever. Everyone knew it was coming um, to where Pete doesn't say Laura Palmer's dead on the phone. He just says she's dead, which I think is so interesting. And like Truman doesn't ask who it was. Like yeah. Truman knows a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so what, well, my memory of this was, so that happens. And then there's a lot of like people learning the news mm-hmm. of Laura Palmer's dead. Um, and often in this way where it will be, the teacher comes in and there's something going on, mm-hmm. you know, that's like vaguely and then everyone looks at the seat where Laura Palmer is supposed to be and they know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is like n- no one has said and we'll get to with with like Leland. We'll get there. But like, you know, the police come in, say they're looking for Leland Palmer and he is immediately like Laura's dead. Mm-hmm. Right. Um Really, the only person who seems to, like, truly not believe it or not want to believe it is Sarah Palmer. Yeah. Um, Grace Zabriskie is fucking incredible in everything she does. But I forgot how good she is in this episode, specifically. Yeah. She's amazing. Um, But basically, everyone else, like, instantly knows as soon as, like, stuff is weird. Mm -hmm. Laura Palmer is dead. Mm -hmm. Like, they put that together so quickly before anyone tells them that directly. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah Palmer really seems to be like the main person who, who yeah. is like not con- not confronting it, uh-huh. especially knowing, you know, knowing fire what we walk know with me about... and everything. Yes. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, and so I thought that I I did remember that midway point, Cooper comes in mm-hmm. and does come in with a different vibe mm-hmm. suddenly from what everything else was. He is. Going around being talking about cherry pie and coffee and like a damn fine meal and mm-hmm. you know uh, asking people about Douglas furs and stuff. Yeah, I remember all of that, but I remembered that being they're going around doing police work. Everyone else is still fully with the weight of mourning over what just happened, and then here comes in this detective who has no connection to Laura Palmer in the way that everyone else in this yeah. in this town does. Yeah. And so it's just approaching it like a case and it's just like, oh yeah, let me look into this. Like, l- let's see the body. By the way, do you know a good diner or what, you know, like yeah. that kind of, yeah. he doesn't specifically ask that while they're looking at the body, but like in my memory, that's what, yeah. what it is. He, is specifically yeah. he comes in and is like weird and jovial in the way that no one else in this pilot is. Uh-huh. Um, everyone is just so diet dower and and starting and once he comes in it starts being him talking to people who remembered her and like having you're getting a little bit more of their reactions because now there's this detective talking to them right that was my memory there's more like what twin peaks is going to be in this than i remembered yeah me there's too. more goofing it the whole subplot going on with audrey is so is good so, like it's good but like that is like Twin Peaks, the show, uh-huh. in a way that, like, I just completely erased that from being like that was in the pilot. Yeah, in my mind, that starts in episode two. You yeah, know? yeah, um, her just being a little weirdo. The one thing I do remember, 
being in the pilot is the weirdo who <laughs> shoves it or like closes his locker and then dances away. Because we all knew that kid in high school. Yes. But, so so, <clears throat> um, an interesting thing about Dale in this episode is I always before rewatching this. I think of season two ends with like Bob possessing Dale and season three is an exploration of that, of that darker side of Dale Cooper. And that, that culminates in, you know, um, Cooper, like sort of foolishly believing that he can undo the past in the final episode of the return and, and his like, sort of obsession with making things right without the actual consideration for, like, Laura as a person, you know? Yeah. And thinks of, thinks of her as an object more than a more than a human being. Yes. And I always think of that as a thing that gets introduced in The Return, and it is so obviously not. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> I here. think. It's all here. Because Cooper, from the get-go is unable to conceive of Laura or Ronette. Ronette, the living, breathing person in front of him, unable to conceive of her as a human. Just, she is, like, an object that I will, like, get information out of. Yeah. You know? And in ways that are sometimes helpful to, like, building a case, like... But, like, he he is intentionally instrumentalizing a video of, like, Laura Palmer being happy. Yes. Uh, to try to, I, I think is what is happening. We're going to learn, it's going to be set up in later episodes, that he can instantly tell, like, people love each, like people who love each other. Yes. Like, he will just walk in and be like, oh, Norma and Big Ad are, are like, fucking. I, I can of... just, I can just immediately sense this. And I think some of, because there's a, there's a comment where he says to Bobby, mm. like, you never loved her or uh-huh. whatever. And I think some of it is he is trying to see, like, what is the actual relationship that people have to yes. Laura Palmer? I can see that if I show them mm-hmm. Laura Palmer being happy because I have this ability to read. Yeah. Um, in a way that I think is like interesting to him as a character, that he is somebody who would instrumentalize like a, a dead woman in this way, but also has this like ability to read people, but that that reading people is very specifically like um Almost like asocial or something. Like he's not uh-huh. like he's not like picking up on the vibes of oh they're fucking on a down low. He's just like aware and is going to say it in a way that people don't right. want to be said. Yeah, he's going to just come in and he's not picking up on the vibes of like, hey, everyone's really depressed right now. Maybe I shouldn't be joking around about donuts or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um. In a way that, like, I'm sure there's some reads people do of of Cooper as autistic or something, but yeah, um, or like, or like at the the end of the episode, um, when like he asks um, Harry, "Where can I get a hotel?" and Harry's like, "I'll get you a good rate at the at the Great Northern," and like Cooper does this like kind of rehearsed spiel about, oh, "I come to these small towns and these motels and blah blah blah," and Harry just listens very politely and is like, says the same, I'll just get you a good rate at the good Great Northern. <laughs> it's fine. You did yeah. not have to explain all that to me. There's one hotel in this town. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I think in a way that's like separate from 
you know, possible reads that you could have on him uh. in, in this way. I, I think there is some, like, uh, of him as, like, an autistic character or something. There's something very intentionally being done here around, like, the detective mode of thinking about things yeah. as being, like, a dehumanizing. Because yes. the other thing is he's showing the video of Laura Palmer being happy. And then also because he is, like, instrumentalizing her, because he is thinking of her as an object to solve a, a crime. Mm-hmm. He is able to look at that and not see, oh, here's the zoom in on this dead girl. He sees, ah, the reflection in her eye shows a, a hog. Like, it shows, like, a motorcycle. So we're looking yeah. for a motorcyclist or yeah. whatever. In a way that, like, most people are... And that's something that's, like, part of detective fiction is the person who can see the little detail that other people aren't going to do. Yeah. And so I think because it's... This is such a trope in detective fiction, it is easy to, like, when you first watch this not knowing how it's going to end, just be like, oh yeah, he's a detective who who's he, a little bit heartless and is coming in and is able to like see the details nobody else sees. But I think he's it is the Columbo. more intentionally. Yes. You know? But I think it is more intentionally about how like that narrative of a detective who solves crimes and is like a hero in that way is specifically somebody who like dehumanizes the people around him in order yeah. to solve those crimes. Yeah. And maybe that's a necessary force in some cases, but like the work his detective work is necessarily dehumanizing on the the people that he interacts with and yeah and yeah so i I just think of so much of that as like being a place that we finally arrive at in the in like episode 18 of the return that like episode eight like the final episode of twin peaks arrives at this conclusion about the the darkness that has been beneath cooper the whole time the and and I I think I think Lynch is aware of that that darkness, quote unquote, as early as this pilot. Like I th- I think that like you know, having watched Blue Velvet, like I think like there's a straight line from Jeffrey Beaumont to Dale Cooper to to how we see Dale in the last episode. You yeah. know, like I just I just think that's like very obvious here, and it was very interesting to see that. It'll, it'll be interesting to see when Albert shows up. Yeah. this time, too, I'm thinking about it, of being like, in fact, Albert and and Cooper... Are not that different. Are not that different in terms of how they relate to this town and the way that they are kind of disrespectful or whatever, but that Cooper has such a sunny attitude. Yeah. And is so just like... Oh, what are the what trees are these? Douglas firs. Douglas firs. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at these donuts. The policeman's dream. Well, they're solving the case of a dead woman who, like, the police officers knew. Mm-hmm. You know, all all this. Whereas Albert's going to come in being like, I'm grumpy, and of course yeah. people are going to like vocalize their uh, how they are upset with Albert in a different way than they are with Cooper. Yeah. Because, oh, he's just, he doesn't, you know, he's just a, a big city detective who just doesn't yeah. quite get it here. Every, but he's trying. Everybody, know? people are so disarmed by um, Cooper being like, hey, Harry, ask me why I'm whittling. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> Harry, hey, Harry. Hey. Harry. <laughs> it's what you do in a town where <laughs> yellow means slow down and not speed up. And like... Harry obviously thinks of this as like a little bit like oh, this big city guy. He's such Especially an ass. Especially the yeah, the whittling is so like uh, patronizing. Yeah, like you know. If but it's also like, but he is kind of charming, you know. Yeah. Whereas like Albert is going to make everybody put their guards up, you know, because yeah. he's such an asshole. 
speaking of speaking of characters, Whereas Albert's going to be like, "I'm from this city. Don't give me any spiel. Just tell me what it is." Like you know. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of characters that I did not like the first time I watched this, because I hate. I'm obviously Albert's not in this episode, but I hated Albert when he's first introduced. Which you're supposed to hate Albert, and then you're supposed to like over the course of the next couple episodes think that Albert is the greatest character in the history of fiction because he is. Yeah. <laughs> um. But speaking of characters that I hated at first and grew to love, um, can we talk about how Bobby in this episode, I hated Bobby the first time I watched this. I thought that Dana Ashbrook was a bad actor. I thought that this character sucked. I didn't know why any of this was happening. This time watching it. Especially after, because he's incredible in The Return. Yes. And when I watched The Return, I was like, did something happen? And he has gotten better as an actor. Yeah, he's gotten better as an actor. A lot of of the people in The Return, I think, have gotten better as actors. Uh Uh-huh. A lot of time passed. But I think, like, the realization that I had with this is he's not bad at acting. He is acting a teenager who is constantly performing yes. at being cool and yes. uh, not caring and everything. And we know, I'm watching this episode knowing that in a few episodes we're going to get him breaking down crying and things. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. We know that the character he's playing is somebody who is not actually this like, oh, fuh, I don't care, whatever. Yeah. He yeah. really does deeply care about what's going on. Uh-huh. But he has to always perform because th- he's just in that, that stage of being a high schooler where you have to perform that you don't give a shit about anything and you're so aloof and you're so done with all of this and whatever. And he's actually doing a very good job of showing how you will often see those teenagers and you are so aware that they are doing a bad job acting at being right like, unconcerned and aloof and everything yeah they're so awkward with their body like he is so awkward with how he carries up his body but in a way that it actually is... feels genuinely like a teenager to me he, so he like pulls up <laughs> him and mike pull up to doc hayward's house right and any sensible person who's drinking and driving is like i'm gonna sit in the car because I don't want anybody to catch on that I'm drinking and driving. <laughs> Bobby gets up on the hood of the car and it's is like, like surfing. swaying and surfing and dancing. With a bottle in his hand. With a bottle in his hand. He's screaming at Doc Hayward. Hey, Doc, I'm drinking and driving. Maybe you should do something about this. <laughs> Doc Hayward does nothing about this. Much like no one did anything about to stop Laura yeah. Palmer from dying. Like... Bobby is screaming, I am 16. I am drinking and driving. Someone should someone should do something about this. <laughs> and no one does. Yeah. You know? And Doc Hayward is just like, I'm not gonna let my daughter go with you. Yeah. You you rap scallions yeah. drinking and driving. Yeah. I love the line too of he's talking to the Bobby's friend who Mike. Mike. Um and is you know I only remember like, that character's name because it's weird that there are two Mike and Bobs like two yeah. pairs of Mike and Bob. <laughs> I mean, it seemed slightly intentional with this show, probably to probably. some degree. Intent. Probably intentional, but also this is a show that is going to introduce Ben and Jerry next episode because that's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, and so there's that line too where it's like. 
Doc Hayward being like, oh, don't normally let my daughter go with people who are drinking and driving or whatever. And then Mike's like, oh, well, Bobby's doing most of the drinking and driving. (laughs) Or whatever. It's so funny. And, like, Bobby's just in the background. (laughs) It's great. Um, But also... James Hurley has always been cool because he's not playing someone who's trying to be aloof and yeah, whatever. I I genuinely am so much more taken on rewatch on knowing the depths to which I hate James. <laughs> I despise him. Oh, wretched little shit man. <laughs> on watching this episode again. Having seen Firewalk with me, having seen James has always been cool, the whole nine yards, I am much more taken with, here is a sad teenager who doesn't really know what he's doing, you know? Yeah. And and much like Bobby, he's going to, like, pick up the, like, motorcycle riding as an affectation to sort of, like, disguise some, like, internal pain he's feeling, um... I think being aware, knowing now that one, James is not cool. Two, the show kind of knows that James is not cool. But three, that 25 years from now, someone is going to look into the camera and say, James has always been cool because they know just makes all of this work better for me. Yeah. Knowing that I'm not actually supposed to take his quote unquote coolness seriously, but also- I don't think he's cool. I think in the fiction, he is a cool guy. You know? Yeah. Within Twin Peaks, within the world of Twin Peaks, what James is, is what cool is. Yes. I, on the other hand, think that Big Ed and his ridiculous, like, that. what's that getup he's wearing to the Great Northern where he's got the, like, the rhinestone jacket, but that doesn't have rhinestones on it, and the like loud western shirt under it. Oh yeah. my god, Big Ed is the coolest <laughs> motherfucker in human history. <laughs> uh, I love him. Does he like reference Tammy Wynette or something in this episode? No, Norma does. Because oh, yeah. Norma is telling him that he needs to get divorced. And he says, you need to do a Tammy Wynette. Or she says, you need to do a Tammy Wynette. Because yeah. obviously Tammy, which line sailed over my head the first time I watched it. Obviously, yeah. anybody watching the show in 1990 is familiar with her as like, oh, there's that lady who keeps getting divorced all the time. <laughs> yeah. because she... Stand by your man. <laughs> because... Tammy Wynette, mega famous in 1990 in a way that she's not now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On account of being dead. (sighs) Um, Man, I'm in those final episodes of Cocaine and Rhinestones right now. It's sad. Yeah. It's a fucking bummer. Have you gotten to when she actually passes yet and like her funeral? Yeah. God. That's fucking devastating. (laughs) Yeah. Um... I have like one and a half episodes left now. Yeah. Um, trying to think of other other characters. So Bobby stealing the show. Um, I I think the scene Donna's good here. We get Donna's daughter, who I completely forgot. Donna's not, sister, sister, not daughter, <laughs> sister, who I completely forgot existed. The other <laughs> Hayward daughter, Mark, Mark Frost Wait. and David Lynch are also about to forget she exists. I think there's a part where she does a piano recital later. Yes. This this memory just recurred in my yes, brain. So she is. does continue to exist, but yeah, barely. Um, 
I love the moment of Donna being like, you got a cover for me? I'm going to sneak out the window. And then the dad comes up and opens the door. It's like, what do you do? Like, how do you cover? And it's just like, dad, I'm going to keep it straight with you. <laughs> but So Doc Hayward, kind of a stupid shithead this episode, a little bit of just like letting Bobby drink and drive. But also the scene of, of him and Donna just like, you're in a little bit of trouble, young lady, but like, let's get you home and safe. And I understand it's been a very hard day for you with all the, you know, your best friend dying. Like the moment of like him connecting with Donna after everything is so sweet. So good. Doc Hayward is like real, like Warren Frost is just like doing really good work as an actor there. Mark Frost dad here. Yeah. Mark Frost dad. What? <laughs> Can you totally... believe that he wrote his dad as being a, a kind of uh, a little bit of a doofus dad, but genuine, like in, in his heart, a good dad? As as, um, as totally reprised has taken to saying, Mark Frost is Warren Frost's son. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Warren Frost is not Mark Frost's dad. <laughs> Mark Frost is Warren Frost's son. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is something that uh, we'll maybe get into more as this podcast goes on. Mm-hmm. But I just want to put forth here um, as part of like how I conceive of because Mark Frost cares so much about like the lore of Twin Peaks in a way that yeah. that David Lynch plays in. Mm-hmm. But my and we'll like this is something I'm going to be testing mm-hmm. as I go through this. But especially when I got to the end of um, the Return and we've been like watching through some of these other early movies from Lynch. Um, He's so concerned with like using dreams and things as the material for movies and making movies that operate within this sort of dream, (laughs) like understanding of what cinema is and what cinema can be. And so this, this little theory that I'm going to be testing as we watch through is that David Lynch likes working with Mark Frost because Mark Frost is going to write all of this dumb bullshit lore mm-hmm. and then David Lynch is going to treat it like a weird fucking dream you had uh, <laughs> and like pull stuff from it and mix it around and do weird things with it but I just but, don't think he I don't think he cares with, about the lore and the way that Mark Frost does I think he cares about it in the way that you have weird dreams where stuff is weirdly connected to other stuff and then you wake up and you're like what the fuck was that about I think he he wants to take that from Frost there's a there's an interesting thing um that um comes up in the biography where Christine McKenna sort of frames Mark Frost and I wish see that I wish there was like interviews with Mark Frost in this, you know? Yeah. Um but she sort of frames Frost as sort of a translator of Lynch has these like pie in the sky ideas, you know, and Mark Frost is like, okay, well, we have to make a television show out of that. That show will air like 45 minutes once every week. And like the people of America are just not going to be on board for like dreams all the time. And so you need to like ground that in like a world. And so like the, the weird lore stuff evolving out of like, well, I got to like, make this function somehow. Yeah. I got to like put the, like come back next week to learn more about that into yeah. uh, David Lynch. I think ideas. there's like a weird back and forth that's happening. There. Oh, absolutely. There's, um, 
I think, um, uh, I think this might have been some other creative collaboration that Lynch had. This might have been like working with someone on um, Mulholland Drive, maybe. But McKenna describes it might have been the whatever. Lynch, if I'm if it's the Mark Frost meeting that I'm thinking of, Lynch and Frost had talked a little bit about working together. And one day, one of them calls the other and is like, hey, I have an idea. And the other is like, oh, great, I had an idea too. And so they meet at Mark Frost's office um, and David Lynch tells Mark Frost an idea and Mark Frost is like, that's terrible. And Mark Frost tells David Lynch an idea and (laughs) David Lynch is like, that's terrible. And then they work on an idea together um, and they're like, oh, I like that. You know? Yeah. I think is how they get there. Um, um, sort of thing. We get like a bunch of the characters here. Yeah, we haven't talked about Leland. We haven't, we haven't talked about Leland. We haven't talked really about Sarah. No, that much. We haven't talked about Shelley and um, Bobby. No, uh, Leo. Leo. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh, funny, funny little thing. Um, uh, real quick is that I had so because the relationship dynamics, like the the like. You're drawing the polycule like map here in Twin Peaks. <laughs> Twin Peaks is one gigantic polycule. Um, drawing the map of the relationships is very funny that I had it backwards where I thought everybody knew Laura was involved with James and she was secretly seeing Bobby on the side. And it's just totally flipped. Everybody yeah. know that she's involved with Bobby and she's secretly seeing James on the side. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bobby is secretly seeing Shelly on the side. Um, but not that secretly because it's so fucking obvious. <laughs> yeah. No, that one's really obvious. It's very funny how they're like keeping it secret and then they literally just walk giant windows of the, the double R, go out to the car in front of the windows and just start making <laughs> out. It's just like... <sighs> <laughs> At least drive a little bit. Um, so just to talk about Shelly for a second, I really like Shelly in this episode a lot. Um, in this episode, she's kind of just sold on like Machinamic is like a, just an instantly charming actress. I don't think she's given she's going to get a lot more material over the next few weeks. Didn't really get super invested in her character just from this. You know, yeah. they kind of just set up, she's seeing Bobby, she's with Leo, and he's abusive. That's kind of all you get with her right now, you yeah. know? Um, and in your heart of hearts, you want her and Norman to end up together. Oh, God, truly. <laughs> I did, I saw Leo for five seconds and just, I'm the I'm one of the world's biggest arachnophobes. I can't see a picture of a spider without freaking out. Yeah. I saw Leo for like two seconds and I was like, I can't wait for tarantulas to eat this dude. <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> he sucks so much in this movie with his just like, you smoke one brand of cigarettes from now on. God. It's really funny. Like, so many people watch this and like, obviously it's Leo. I watch this episode and think, obviously it's Richard Horn. Obviously it's Richard Horn. Um, like if I was yeah. watching this in a vacuum, I didn't know who it was. I would watch this and think it's Richard Horn because it's just, he's the most evil motherfucker in human history. Yeah. Um, just, just 
<sighs> David Lynch is so good. Um, Richard Horn saying, um, in Twin Peaks, health and industry go hand in hand. Cut to, like, Laura Palmer dead um, in the, like, industrializing town. And it's like, Richard Horn is right. Health and industry do go hand in hand. It's just that industry is killing people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I guess we should talk about Sarah and Leland. Yeah. I have I I have to believe that Lynch like because uh, obviously Frost I, you go so what supposedly the there's they don't know who the killer is yet yes but definitely while making this I think they have the ideas of who it could be who are we going to seed here that we mm-hmm. can develop that seed yeah and so they're doing it with Leland in the same way that I think they're doing it with. Richard Horn. Mm. Um, wait, not Richard. Is it Richard? No, it's Ben Horn. Ben Horn. Why was I thinking it's Richard? Well, because we're going to get Richard Horn later. Who's Richard Horn? Audrey's son. Why did I have that name in my head? Yeah. Why on earth was that bouncing around in there? Obviously, that's Ben. I've said Richard like six times in this episode for some reason. Yeah, I had a moment where I said it and I was like... That's not right. That didn't feel right in my mouth. I acknowledge that's not weird. That, that's not that little <laughs> weird shit who gets like sent into some dimension or exploded or something for evil coop. I don't remember. I acknowledged earlier in this episode that we're gonna get Ben and Jerry, and then I just kept calling yeah. him Richard for some reason. Anyway, is the actor's name Richard? Whatever. Mm. Uh, we, you and I watched, um, Richard. Richard Bamer, you and I watched an episode of Deep Space Nine yesterday where he shows up, and maybe I just got that actor's name in my head and mixed things around. Yeah. Anyway. You popped when you saw him. I knew it was coming. Oh, my God. I I knew Ben Horn was in this one. Oh, I lost my shit when Ben (laughs) Horn showed up. Uh, Anyway, um, they're seating Ben Horn, you know? I wish I was seating Ben Horn. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know they're they're seating um, James here with the locket and burying the locket. Right. Yeah. That's the one that obviously you probably aren't going to do because you're making it too much of a deal here. But maybe you're going to do. Maybe you're going to play off of the fact that people don't think it's him in the way that they did in Laura. Yeah. And then whatever. You know, there's there's lots of ones where they're like giving you little pieces where oh it could be this person or it could be this person. And I think in that they are they are already knowing that Leland Palmer is on the table as the killer. Yeah. Um, for for me, I guess the thing that I was picking up that I found interesting is that is not <clears throat> like whether or not they knew. I just got the feeling like I I think Lynch took the pilot really to heart when writing Fire Walk with Me because there's just yes. so much stuff here that ties into Fire Walk with Me that just feels like very easy. Like once you know. If you've already got this pilot here, you've got the next day, it's already done. Now you can put so much stuff in the prequel that is going to become so much more sinister when you rewatch, you yeah. know, the pilot. Um, I think that's just really expertly done. I think I think that like, um, Ray Wise and Grace Zabriskie give fucking incredible performances. 
um, in this episode. And I, and I think that like those performances are made even stronger by knowing what Firewalk with me is going to take th- this specific episode and it's going to twist it, you know? Yeah. And it's going to layer it. And it's but it's, going- it's going to build on like Sarah Palmer knew to some extent what was going on. She knew, but she didn't know. Oh, God, it's so fucking dark. And and she does like when you when you know that context and you watch this pilot, then so much of everybody else instantly knowing it's Laura Palmer in a way where they it's just felt destined or it felt like, well, of course, obviously, if someone is going to turn up dead, it's going to be her. But also in this way where uh, the pilot is sort of obscuring that because of the way that people talk around death, especially in these small communities, as no one is going to outright say, well, of course, that person would be someone who... Mm. I had this weird experience that I went to where I went to... Like, I went back to the town where I went to high school. Literally one of the biggest fucking bullies that I had in middle school and high school. Uh, Kid who probably the last time I saw him called me a faggot. Mm -hmm. Um, Was just an absolute shit to everyone. Was just mean. Mm. Was rude. Mm. Um was you know was deeply racist and homophobic and all that um he had died drink drunk driving mm-hmm. and i saw a thing that was like collecting money and for uh the family and it was all about what a great kid he was and stuff and i was like this is bullshit right but that's just the way that you talk about death yeah. people did that with the fucking queen Fuck yeah her yeah but <laughs> <Like, laughs> And so I think it. I think there's an interesting thing that it's able to do here, where this episode can kind of obscure how much it, it is both showing you how much everyone was aware that Laura Palmer was in trouble. Yes, and that she was in danger. Mm-hmm. But also, nobody is saying it explicitly because they are all in the way that I think happens with death in general, but especially small communities are are not are going to talk about how she was so perfect and yeah i can't believe this would happen and blah, blah, yeah because that's what these communities are like right we're only going to focus on like the good things after someone's dead yes um you know i think um sarah being the one person in denial here um just gets so interesting and thorny when you get into the ways in which fire walk with me and um the return, I think, explore her character as both complicit and equally victim. You know, yeah. I I think <clears throat> I think a lot of folks online try to um, watch Firewalk with Me and the Return and are troubled by the ways in which um, it explores that because I think I think people watch those things and are like, oh look, it's saying that like Laura or Sarah like did this somehow. And I don't think that's what's happening. I think like it is just trying to sit with, and in in much the way that like Sarah Palmer as a character must sit with for the rest of her life. Was I complicit? Was I just a victim? It's a little bit of both, you know? Um, Like it is is sitting in the, the both of us are being victimized by this man. Uh huh. But I'm the but adult. also as the as the mother, uh-huh. I feel like I had a responsibility within me to protect my daughter more than I did. Uh huh. But also, that's an extremely hard thing to do when I am also like 
yeah feel unable to act in this situation it's so fucking dark in this episode knowing knowing what we know about firewalk with me knowing that leland is drugging her to to like you know make her complicit in his crimes um then seeing like truman goes to interview sarah and um doc hayward like drugs like gives her a sedative just to get her to be able to talk you know yeah it's so dark yeah. Like, it's just fucking depressing. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, Leland. God, the the thing that really got to me about Ray Wise's performance. Um, and I think even if I didn't, I think even absent of the knowledge of Firewalk with me, the thing when when Sarah calls him and then you see the cop car pull up in the background and he can't even like, he can't. I I in my memory he's like, the the sheriff's here, and that's when she starts breaking down. He can't even like, tell her, he just says Sheriff Truman, and I I think she can hear it, but he's not even really talking to her at that point, you know, yeah. um, and he he can't even say Laura's dead to Sarah in that moment, you know, yeah, um. I think he's I, I I think Ray Wise just is fucking incredible in that scene. Yeah. Well and and who knows, if they wrote it so it was a different killer, maybe we would have different feelings on this I, moment. But like I think it's also so interesting the way that um everyone kind of seems to know that it's Laura Palmer is dead. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't vocalize it. Yeah. They know that something's up and they will look and they will scream or they will they will you will see the the realization that Laura Palmer is dead, like sink in. Yeah, but but Leland Palmer says mm-hmm. Laura is dead when he sees yeah Sheriff Truman too, like Sheriff Truman. Yeah, like he knows, like, in, in a weird way where he's like almost confessing in that moment that he knows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so much of his interactions here, and I would have to like go back and rewatch it to like get the exact stuff. But when I was watching it, has this tone of like, in a way that's going to be very contrary to the like Bob did it possessing mm. him reading that I think much of other stuff that Lynch has yeah. done resists. Um, there's a certain amount to which his responses seem to be actively trying to con- construct like. I have the nervousness of I, I may have just been caught, but I'm going to try to spin it into I'm so in shock that my daughter's yeah. dead. Yeah. Um and there's a there's a weird like energy to some of this stuff that I, I think when you know that's at least how I read it. As yeah. this like he's a he knows that Laura Palmer's dead because he knows that he did it. Uh uh-huh. he is afraid that he like he doesn't know how much the cops know, and so he is going to say things, but he is going to say things in the shock of, "Oh my God, my daughter's dead." Uh-huh. I'm I'm in shock. My daughter's dead. Well, and I think even like, you know, so much of Firewalk with Me and the Return, obviously, there's the bit in season two that like puts the culpability on Bob, and we'll talk about that when we get it because I'm I'll be interested to see that again and see how I feel about it. Um, but so much of Firewalk with Me puts the culpability on Leland. Um. I think even within it is Leland's fault, there is a lot of space for Leland is in denial. You know, I think he knows way more than one is comfortable with. You know, it is so horrifying how much he knows. 
but like almost in a way of like I think Leland compartment. I think maybe Bob is a way for him to compartmentalize. Of at home, when Bob's around, I do these things, but like that doesn't affect my life at the Great Northern. Yeah, that doesn't affect like that doesn't like leave the home in his mind. You know. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking of cocaine and rhinestones again now. <laughs> with the compartmentalized like oh right yeah. yeah and the like different identities that seem to be trying to do cocaine and then him trying to yeah and who knows how much of that's actually real or what got it that's all messed up I forgot yeah. about that shit I'm gonna probably whenever season three comes out in like six years or whatever I will re-listen to all this but it's too too raw <laughs> yeah no it's <laughs> you know it's funny the first, the first season has that like one episode that you can just like skip. That's uh. I forget which guy, but who's just like, like oh murdered yeah his yeah wife yeah and stuff yeah yeah that's yeah. the that's the only episode I ju- I just straight up didn't listen to that episode like that one was really yeah good. he yeah. Co gives the content warnings for that episode and I was like I'm just skipping this I'm not yeah um you know what's funny just to digress a little bit I won't say who um but it's like. Sort of a friend of mine, maybe more of a friend of a friend, um, was saying that they just hate how season two, like, gets up its own ass, basically, of Cocaine and Rhinestones. I'm like, oh, I really like season one, but the season two is just, like, too self-indulgent, too... all these things. And I was just thinking to myself, I'm like, I really like how self-indulgent season two is. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right that season two just, like, gets up its own ass. I think that's what I like about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, more Twin Peaks thoughts. Um, I mean, obviously, like, you know, just emotionally, like, the, the seeing people react to Laura Palmer's death is just fucking great, you know? Like, yeah. I, I think, especially, I guess the last thing I want to say is just, like, Placing this in the context of, like, what we've seen so far of Lynch, like, oh, my God. He's just, he just gets better and better as a filmmaker. Yeah. Like, I think, rewatching Blue Velvet. As a standalone thing, like, Blue Velvet works better than the pilot in many ways. I I But also, like, there's something, there's something, like, if this was all that existed at Twin Peaks... There's something like I would still cut out the Audrey Horn stuff. I just feel like that. I just would. I just would yeah. cut that if this was a standalone thing. But like, there's there's something about the incompleteness here that, yeah. If this was a Mulholland Drive, let's say, yeah. If this had the same like thing as Mulholland Drive, I almost think that this would that this would be better for me than. Blue Velvet was. And I watched Blue yeah. Velvet. I watched Blue Velvet two weeks ago and was like, damn, Blue Velvet is like a masterpiece in like a way that I had had forgotten in a way. And I, I just think that like the place that Lynch reaches with this, just emotionally, is just like, oh my God. I think if this is all that exists, we cut out the Audrey Horn and it's just this episode. Yeah. I mean, we still have her being a little bit of a weirdo somewhat, but like we cut out the whole stop block with her. Yeah. Um, I think I still think that people would. I think generally people would like Blue Velvet more because Blue Velvet more is like a cohesive story. Uh huh. 
And I think I would like this more just because I am naturally drawn to things that feel weird and incomplete and mm-hmm. whatever. Like it is, yeah. it's just something I thrive on and yeah, a lot of totally. Yeah. Um, it's a really good fucking episode. It's a really good fucking episode of TV. Um, hopefully next week we have less to talk about. Eh, yeah, I don't actually hope that. I I want to see more of Cooper. I want to see. I think what I'm excited about is, in this episode, he's kind of a weirdo who doesn't fit in. I'm excited for like two or three weeks from now when like Cooper now just totally fits into this town. You know, yeah, he's just, just like, like totally him. yes. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking about. <laughs> just thinking about the town hall meeting. <laughs> That's Margaret. We call her the log lady. Why is that? Because she carries that log with her. <laughs> That's real, though. No, no, no. One no, of no. the first things I asked you when you were here for like a. Uh, after a couple months in Chicago, it's like, have you seen the honey guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we, I think we talked about Honk for Hemp Guy on like the last episode of the show. I'm pretty sure we talked about Honk for Hemp Guy on the yeah. show recently. Um, yeah. <laughs> we call her the log lady. Because <laughs> she's always got that log with her. Yeah. Oh, I should mention, we watched this episode with the log lady intro, and I fully intend to watch all of these. Yeah, we're going to log- watch through. I've never seen the log lady intro. Me neither. Um... It was interesting being be, because we looked it up. That was syndication. Mm-hmm. They did those intros. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is a certain, when I think of like a certain era of Twin Peaks, like yeah. cultural awareness, the log lady use was, the log lady felt so outsized. Yes. From he, what the log lady is in the show, which is still a, like, she comes in and does weird cryptic things, but like there's so many other things that are doing it that sometimes I would watch like, why is it that literally every parody from like the nineties and like, yeah. you know, the is 2000s. specifically latching onto the log lady. Like, I guess that just became in the way that sometimes it naturally will become like the, yeah. the thing that people associate with something, but seeing the log lady intros and knowing that like when this was running on syndication, that was before every single episode. I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Obviously people are like, they fucking care about the log lady and the way that me watching it on streaming or whatever just did not. It's interesting. Um, no, I mean, I still love the log lady. It's still so sad when she's like in the return. God. <clears throat> fucking devastating. There was a part where she called up at the beginning of this and I just thought of God. I'm dying. Yeah. I'm dying. <sighs> Hawk. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's, um, the other thing I thought of is the moment that we see Josie at the very beginning. I was like, "You're gonna turn it into a door." <laughs> yeah, it's literally every time she's on screen. I'm thinking, "You're gonna become a doorknob someday." <laughs> what a stupid show! Also, Twin Peaks. also at some point, David Lynch is going to introduce a a Asian character who is obviously. Obviously, Josie Packard, but then magically transform her into a white woman for no reason. <laughs> because sometimes David Lynch just sucks. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh. I was going to tell you something. And I'll tie this in with the log leaning intros. 
watching this and and hearing the the Laura is the many that leads to the one, it's so obvious to me that like the at least the very least this log lady intro is just an yeah. expression of like she's the one that leads to the many. She's the one that leads to the many. Anyway, um, um, it's so obvious to me that that is just like David Lynch just like writing some shit about his own spiritual practice into the show. <laughs> Um, which reminded me of, I needed to tell you something in the biography of, um, David Lynch. Obviously he has been practicing transcendental meditation for decades, you know? Yeah. In the biography, many, many people in David's life specifically link, like, the reason he started he started the David Lynch Foundation, he started selling the stuff, he started the charity, he started like really trying to like get transcendental meditation out into the world is because of 9/11. He fe- he feels that if everybody did transcendental meditation that 9/11 wouldn't have happened. All right. So anyway, how did you think about the stairs in this first episode of Twin Peaks? They are very ominous. They're so ominous. The most ominous stairs. Yeah. I mean, S, right? God, those fucking... The the, the ceiling, ceiling fan? fan. This, it's weird how the ceiling fan is part of the stairs, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you know it's s rank stairs, even though it's just a suburban family home, is when the ceiling fan is a part of the stairs. That's an s rank stairs. Yeah. <laughs> um... God, Sarah asking who's upstairs is so fucking ugh. Once yeah. you know, once you know, like Sarah being like, "Who's upstairs?" is like, "Oh my god." Yeah. Um. Oh. Uh. Also, we get the first shot of Bob at the very end here. Yeah, he gets I up and screams. And... I thought there was like two shots of Bob in this episode because specifically, I remembered the thing about. Lynch just told the story of like Frank De Silva like gets stuck in like Laura's closet for a second while make while helping make the set, and I thought there was a shot of him in the closet in this episode, but it's just the one in the mirror. That's yeah. it. In a way, where like I'll have to relook if I can find up find out if it was they knew that shot was in there when they like made this, or was it like they like finish making this episode and then we're like, Oh shit. <laughs> well, so it's like, um, so the, <clears throat> the story goes, um, Frank or er, er, David sees Frank stuck in Laura's closet for a second and starts to think about, Oh, you know, what if the killer was like this other person or whatever? And then they're doing that shot of Sarah on the couch and she bolts up right because she has the dream and the cinematographer is like oh david frank was accidentally in the shot we got to redo it and and david's like no 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 no, frank are you an actor and like puts frank da silva into the show right um and, and that ends up being pretty convenient because it was after they do that scene that david is like all right i guess i got to figure out what we're doing for this like movie version that we're going to release internationally. It like basically hadn't given that much thought at all. Knew that it was coming, knew that they had to make an ending for this, but didn't really think about it until 
they'd wrapped the like normal pilot production part. So, yeah. um, yeah. Anyway, I didn't solicit questions, but that's fine because this is a three-hour episode almost. It's happening again. <laughs> <laughs> that podcast you like is coming back in style. Where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me at FoxMomnia on Twitter and co-host and also Letterboxd. I always forget to mention that, but you can go follow my Letterboxd. Um, go listen to my other podcasts. I have Ghost Divers. It's an anime podcast. Uh, when you listen to this, we are still at the beginning of our paranoia. I think like if you're listening to this in the Patreon, this Friday is the, um, the first discussion episode for Paranoia Agent. If you're listening to the free feed, that's already out. Um, also, something's coming on Thursday. If you're listening to this in the Patreon, wait till Thursday. If you're listening to this in the free feed, uh, go check out my Twitter bio or my Twitter uh, pinned tweaks. I probably haven't put it in there by then. Oh, crap. I gotta get Gotham up before tomorrow morning. Well, whatever. I'll get it up tomorrow morning. Anyway. Um, and then also go listen to Pondering Putan, which is a podcast where Connor and I read through Cornell High School at the same rate that it was published in the weekly magazine. Um, and the, the most recent episode at the time that uh, we're recording this, which I guess will be the one from like almost a week ago. Uh, we didn't talk about the chapter at all, but basically like beat for beat recreated the chapter, which is weird. There are parts that I didn't intend. Like I didn't think about how the chapter ends with aliens. When I talked about aliens, the movie only after we hit record or finished recording was Connor was like, was that intentional that you brought up aliens because of how the chapter ended? And I was like, no, that just came up. You haven't. Uh, I sent. I sent a lengthy email to Putan, but you. I don't think you've answered it yet. Yeah. Because... So we. We. I think we. We said it in there. Nobody has responded yet. Um, but feel free to let me know. Just tweet at me. This is one of the rare ca- uh, occasions where you can just tweet at Fox Mom Nia, um, or better yet, tweet at Ponder Putan. I'd mm. prefer that. And say if we can't. If we are allowed to do emails after the timer goes off, or if we have to get into the main episode. Oh, I did send a lengthy email. My proposal is that we can do it after the timer goes off when I say you can write into this email, but we have to answer it as quickly as we possibly can. Okay. But I don't know if, if people want to do that. Yeah. Um, did you send an email? I sent a lengthy email. A lengthy email. Did you send it to, or did you just send it at Ghost Divers? The the people who like, um, this is not lengthy. I I remember. I think I was high when I wrote this email, so I remembered it being much longer than it is. Okay. Well, we do uh, have multiple multiple emails here, so. Next episode might just be us doing some emails, but we'll see. 
Connor hosts it and doesn't tell me what we're going to do for any episode. So <laughs> this is the one where he just starts talking to me about the Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, and then we do a weird uh, nesting doll of an episode where I get really concerned <laughs> about what uh, how we define humanity. Uh, <laughs> and then we just like have another tangent. And then we come back and we come to the conclusion of humanity. And during that entire time, I was looking up articles about the current Jaguar season. I could so tell. So that I could pretend like I knew what I, I was talking about. I could tell that you were like, obviously like, yeah, I, I, I could tell. I don't know anything <laughs> about the Jaguars. You can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host at autumnal. You can go to exportodd.io. That'll take you to the Patreon page for the podcast network. Um, on that page, we do have links to all the free feeds. So if you just want to find a podcast, you can find it there. You can send it to your friends. We highly encourage that. Um, or for a dollar a month, you can get early access to this show, to Gotham City Limits, to um, Hot Singles, some other stuff I'm probably forgetting off the top of my head. Um, <clears throat> and for $5 a month, you can get Pop Town Funk. Um, and also patrons, and this is also in a free feed, but the free feed is kind of hard to find at the minute for reasons that will become apparent. Um, in that Patreon feed is the first episode of a new podcast I'm doing with Rick. Um, called Coffee and Comic Books that's kind of like this podcast, but for comic books. Um, much shorter. Considerably shorter. Yeah, probably going to be shorter than this one. Um, so yeah, the the very first like episode zero, just sort of introducing it, is in that Patreon feed. We have recorded one more episode, but I'm probably going to wait until like maybe December-ish? Maybe november but probably December to start putting things out just so that I can get a couple recorded and have like a little back, like a little tiny backlog before we really get rolling. So, um, also, uh, I have a friend working on art for that and, uh, would like to get that done before the show actually launches. Um, yeah, <laughs> that it friend, if you're listening to this, I know I need to get back to you about, um, a certain thing, a very important question you asked me for the art. I I know you've had a wild I've, fucking week. I've had a wild fucking week. I was supposed to be off today, today and yesterday, and instead worked eight hours both days. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> it's been a long one. Um, trying to think of anything else. Want promo? We we promote everything. Yeah. Oh, Kokoro is real. Are you waiting for me to say it? (laughs) I was trying to. I was waiting for either for you to say it or for me to think about like a good tangent to go on. Yeah. I mean, you still haven't responded, and at this point, you saying. I mean, I guess technically, if you do say, "Oh, Kokoro is real." Oh, you Coro have, is real. You have steel the point.
keeps back on the rack Bella Lugos is dead The bats have left the bell tower The victims have been bled Red velvet lines The black box Bella Lugos is dead
<laughs> I'm not gonna find it. It's this this. Even when you're at work, we message too much. <laughs> I was gonna put something funny here for after Bill Lugosi's dead, but I guess I won't now. It wasn't that funny. When when are you gonna put it in here? Oh, I was just gonna joke about like <clears throat> listeners that silence you just heard is um Nia being mad because I pressed record this time. Yeah. But they're not going to understand that there was silence there uh-huh. because I mean, I guess if I still line it up, but so normally like when a sound starts, I line it up with the last like yeah. at the end of Bella Lugosi's dead. Mm-hmm. So all the silence, they'll be Bella Lugosi's dead over it. Right. So they're not going to understand that there was silence there. Yeah. You know, what's really funny is that you were, you were making the, the little spreadsheet where we keep track of the movies. Yeah. And you and I kept like talking about the movies and being like, oh, we have to stop this. We're doing the podcast now. Like we're Mm -hmm. like, we haven't hit record yet. We're just burning pod. Shut up. And now we've hit record. And I'm like, that wine was pretty good. What was that? What was that wine you got? I don't don't know. I don't know. kind of an orangey color. I liked it. Yeah. It's it's an orange wine. Okay. So orange wine being, um, so red wines are typically made with the skins on, white wines with the skins off. Mm-hmm. Orange wine, ha- it's like a green grape, but uses the skin. Okay. In the process. Okay. So I've become my grandma. Yeah. But only in virtual space. Because um, I thought of this because we were talking about wine. In Stardew, I've gotten really into winemaking. That's my thing right now. I'm really into making wines. And so for a little bit... Because for the first two months of Stardew... Two months in-game. Not two months of me playing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. For the two first in-game months, I wasn't making friends with anybody in town because I was just like so busy trying to get my farm up and running. And now the fall has come... And I actually have free time. And I might adjust the mic a little bit so that it's kind of... A little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to scooch forward. You're going to hear some chair sounds. Um, So, yeah. For the first two months, I was just trying to get my farm up and running. And this is like... The the fall is here. And I'm like finally finding myself having free time for the first time, basically. Because I have enough sprinklers that like my farm takes care of itself. It's a good setup. Um... And so I'm like, well, I'll just try to make friends with everybody in town. And I like, I could go onto the wiki and learn this villager likes this and this villager likes that. And this villager likes this. Or um, I have a pretty extensive wine and jelly making operation. And I've just become my grandma because every time I see somebody in the street, I'm like, hey, you want some grape jelly? Hey, <laughs> hey, here's some jelly. I've got jelly. Do you want jelly? Because I'll give you some fucking jelly. Yeah. Which is how my grandma was. You could not escape her house without a jar of jelly. Usually multiple jars of jelly. Yeah. Dolores loved to send you home with many jars of jelly. And my dad hated it. But I was a child. And so I ate that shit up. (laughs) Yeah. My dad, who had been receiving jelly from his mom for, you know, 40 plus years, whatever, um... My dad is older than 40. 
I don't know how long my grandma's been dead. I don't know how long she's been stopped making jelly. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying. Anyway. Yeah. For a really long time. Yeah, for a really long time. He was sick of it. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I mean, it's free jelly. It's like, free jelly. <clears throat> if if you have enough jelly in your fridge and you don't want to... Like, if it's so much jelly that you're just regularly getting it and it's hard to work through... Yeah. Like, there's either two things that are happening. One is that you've just made, like, toasted jelly a centerpiece of your breakfast. Yeah. And you just you just know you got the jelly on lock. Mm-hmm. That's free jelly. So the other option uh-huh. is you don't want the jelly. Now you're giving jelly to your friends. Yeah, but you're not giving your the jelly to your friends the same frequency that your grandma or your mom or whatever is giving you jelly. Yeah, because you're not giving it to the same friend every single time. No, and so sometimes you'll just be like, "Hey, do you want some jelly?" People will be like, "Yeah, sure." So <clears throat> and now people are like. Oh man, that was really good jelly. Yeah. They're they're warmed up to you. Yeah. So my mom It's free jelly. <laughs> I don't know how, off the top of my head how old my mom is, but I think she's getting closer to sixty than she was <clears throat> than she is to fifty, I think. Yeah. And so <clears throat> when I saw her last, she gave me a bunch of jelly that was just exquisite. My mom made some really good jelly. Yeah. You gave me well, one of them. Yes, and so this yeah. is the thing, is that she gave me two jars of jelly to fly from Phoenix to Chicago, and I gave you one of those jars of jelly. And on the one hand, I'm like, well, it's nice as a, a token of friendship. Here, have some jelly. On the other hand, I kind of wish I had some more of that jelly. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess they were, it was jam or preserves. Yeah. I'm, it, it was jam. It was jam. Um, You know, I... I... You can tell your mom this or uh-huh. something. So I, I got like some nice crackers and then there's this uh, cheese St. Angel. It's like a really good soft cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like smear that on it and then I would put some of the jelly on top. It was very good. I will t- I will pass that along to my mom. Yeah. Um, it, went, it went really well with the cheese. Yeah. Um, I was talking <clears throat> to my therapist because um, like, <clears throat> well, so one, I've been seeing my therapist for like, Coming up on three years. Two, she is quitting her job uh, in like a month or so. And so we have kind of a rapport. um, And also, she's not like checked out. Like we had a really good session. And then for like the last 10 minutes of the session, she was just like, hey, I wanted to check in with you about how you feel about me like quitting this job. And we're just kind of shooting the shit. And I was like, I'd been thinking about winding down, like, going to, like, once a month or twice a month, you know, winding down the frequency of how often I go to therapy. So it worked out good. All all is well in therapy land. But we're just kind of, like, having, like, not we're friends, because that's not quite, like, the relationship that you have. But, like, you, you talk to somebody for, like, an hour every week for years. You're kind of friends now, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I told her that you... Not you. Emily had given me many apples. And I appreciate it. I, I needed... I wanted those apples. They've become a staple of my breakfast. But there were there we, we hit a point where I was like, okay, now I have a lot of apples. Yeah. And I told my therapist, I was like, yeah, my friend gave me all these apples. <clears throat> I'm probably going to try and make apple cider out of it. That turned out really well. I think I maybe overdid it with the cloves, but I think the cloves... Like, I think... 
I did like two tablespoons of cloves and I needed like a tablespoon and a half or something, you know? I mean, I could taste that there's cloves in it, but I like cloves. So. I also think, I think also maybe I, I threw a whole orange in there. I cut the orange in half, threw it in there. I wonder if maybe if I peeled the orange so there wasn't skin, maybe that note that I was tasting was like, would get, because there was a slight bitter note, a very slight bitter note to the apple cider that I think maybe. maybe. I, the bitter note was probably from the, the pith. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So anyway. But I mean, I, I will throw in pith when I make like, but also I'm making chai where the tea itself is bitter, but. Yeah. I'm a person who it really likes bitter as a quality of food. Me too. Me too. <clears throat> anyway. Um. <coughs> Apple cider turned out very good. My my therapist, though, we're chit-chatting, and I was telling her about this apple cider, and she was very adamant. She's like, apple cider is good and all, but you got to make apple butter. And I was like, really? Oh. And she's like, well, think about it, because apple cider, you'll drink that. That'll be gone in two or three days. Apple butter, that's going to last you a week, two weeks, three weeks? I don't know. Because she she was in a similar situation where a friend had given her, a friend had given her like 40 apples, and she turned that into apple butter, and she was very pleased with herself. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> this is how all these foods originate. Yeah, is that you grow apples, and the thing—I don't—if people haven't grown plants, you uh-huh. may not be aware of this, but like everything is ready to pick around the same time. Yeah, and you pick a bunch, and you're like, "Oh, this is great," and then. It's around the same time, so you just picked all of that. You're like, this is a lot, but this is pretty good. And then, like, literally two weeks later, you're like, well, shit, there's a bunch more I need to pick. I haven't gotten through the, like, first stuff yet. <laughs> and so what you do is you're like, well, guess I'm, like, preserving it, making it into drinks, making uh-huh. it into, yeah. 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 You just start finding weird. This is how you find those recipes on food blogs where it's like zucchini pizza, where we shred the zucchini and we do like a full layer of it and it's good. Okay. So I have seen. But it's invented from people who grow zucchini and are like, I need to fucking figure out what to do with my zucchini. I watch a bunch of different food YouTubers, right? Yeah. And like three of them independently. So like Adam Ragusea did not make a video about the zucchini pizza. He made a he made a video about hey, when I make pizza dough, I make a huge batch, like a massive batch of pizza dough. And I'll use like I'll make like pizza on like Monday and Friday. And then I've got, you know, like two more servings of pizza dough that is just kind of still fermenting in my fridge. The more it ferments, the, you know, tastier it's going to be, but I don't want to let it, like, go too long and the yeast die or whatever, you know? So he made a video, like, here's, like, five different uses for um, uh, extra pizza dough, and the zucchini pizza comes up there. And then I'm, like, watching another food YouTuber, and he's, like, making a video about, like, what was it? He was making a, a video about, like, trying to eat like what's in season and so like instead of like ah i'm gonna eat like you know tomato pasta all year round like let me like this you know in summer i'm gonna have pasta with my tomatoes or tomatoes with my pasta but in winter i'm gonna have you know how might i incorporate like root vegetables and things that like you know are still so and he ends up mentioning this fucking zucchini pizza because i think zucchinis are in season right now yeah and then i was watching something else 
And that motherfucker, not a video about the zucchini pizza. I have never gotten a recipe for the zucchini pizza. What I have gotten is three YouTubers being like, this zucchini pizza that keeps going around in all the viral TikToks and stuff. And I'm like, motherfucker, someone show me how to make this thing, I guess, because none of you will stop talking about it. I can show you how to make zucchini pizza. I've made zucchini pizza because we don't grow zucchini, but we uh-huh. have, we get a CSA box, so like community supported agriculture. Yeah. Um, and part of it is that like me being Taoist, eating what's in season is like a, a meaningful thing to me. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I want to intentionally do. Yes. <clears throat> Getting a CSA box is a thing that like almost forces that on me because you get the box and you're like, I have to cook something around this. Well, yeah. So like, he- I'm not, I'm not planning dishes and I'm being, what am I going to get for it? It's like, I have so much fucking kabocha squash right now. So I'm going to do nimono. I'm going to do like fritters. I'm going to do a soup. I'm just going to turn this giant kabocha that they gave me into a bunch of meals. So here's what's happened to me is so for you, you have turned me into a big believer in the CSA box. I think the, the CSA box is a really cool thing. And there was a week where I was like, Maybe I should get one of these. And then I thought about it some more. And you getting a CSA box has warped my schedule. Because I... Okay. (laughs) So the other thing is... We could probably... There are simpler CSA boxes. Like, we have the higher tier. And it's specifically because the higher tier will have weirder ingredients. Yes. And for Emily and I, having those weirder ingredients, having them come in and have to figure out what to do with them is important because we want to introduce our toddler to, like, a wider variety of foods. Uh So there are simple ones where it's like, oh, you're probably going to get some carrots and you're going to get, like, you're going to get the basic stuff. Yeah. And then we have the one where they're going to throw in the squash blossoms or here's this weird pepper that we grew or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um. And those are all things that we enjoy getting and having to cook with. But it's not like they have one that's just the weird stuff, which is what we honestly probably want the most. So you just have to get the base one with more stuff thrown in, which means especially as we get into like the like autumn fall root vegetable stuff, a lot of that stuff is like very dense like uh-huh. in terms of calorie, like you're not going to use a shit ton of this stuff. Yeah. In the same way of like when they give you a bunch of greens, I'm uh-huh. like, this box is full of greens and I'm going to make it into like two socks. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, okay. So here's what's happened. I have Thursday and Friday off most every week. Every now and then there's a little disruption to it, but usually I have Thursday and Friday off work. And so I fell into like... <clears throat> Thursday, um, I had, like, bag end for a long time. Now I've kind of slotted in another podcast on Thursday evenings. That's also, Nora also has Thursday off. And so I usually try to get some housework done. But I try not to go out too much because that's my time with Nora. And so we do, you know, we try to spend time together. Wizard Thursdays. Wizard Thursdays. Um, Nora does not like that name, <laughs> which has only pushed me to use it more. <laughs> anyway. Well, Nora, if you're listening to this, sorry that I invented that term. <laughs> Friday, Nora usually works in the morning and I usually have that day off. And so I, if I'm, if I wake up on time, not every week, but like, I've been trying to push myself to like, wake up on time to do this. Um, I'll wake up. I drive her to work and then I go grocery shopping and you have warped my schedule because there were, there were a couple weeks 
Because the other thing that happens on Friday is I come here and we watch the movie for stairwells. And you get your CSA box on Friday and Emily is like, I have so many vegetables. Please take some fucking vegetables off my hands. And I'm like, I'll have some carrots. and uh, Yeah, I think that's all I need. And Emily's like, here's some shit you've never heard of. Here's way more carrots than you could have ever expected. Here's celery too. Here's, <laughs> and I really, I have come to really appreciate it. The first time it, ha- the first couple times it happened, I was like, oh my God, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> but I have come to really appreciate it. But now it's messed up my Friday grocery trip because like the, so I, I didn't wake up in time to drive nowhere to work this last Friday, but the Friday before I did it. And I was like looking at the vegetables and I was like, well, I'm going to get two things that I absolutely positively know that I need and I might not get from the CSA box. <laughs> and otherwise, I'm not buying vegetables until like tomorrow or Sunday because I don't fucking know what shit's <laughs> going to be pushed off out of me. And it's been it's been lovely. I'm complaining. It's a we can we can start just like sending you a list of what we got Thursday night or something. That might be that might be the thing to do. Honestly, because we get the CSA ba- box on Thursdays. That might be a good that might be a good approach. <laughs> but no, it is genuinely a great problem to have. It has made my life a lot better. I'm cooking with so many more vegetables than I used to and fruits and all these things. Um, You know, I'm like, I made that apple cider and it was lovely and it was great because I had like an abundance of apples that I was not going to eat. Even if I had an apple for with my breakfast every morning, I just had way more than I was going to eat. Yeah. They give you more than seven apples every week. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So it's, it's turned out really well. But it did, like, it is. It has taken an adjustment. And I'm not even the one ordering the fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. No, when we first got the box, it was just like, damn. The entire way that I... Pro- the thing is, the box ends as it gets in the winter. Because they're not, like... Right. Grabbing food and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's always just a weird shot. Because now it's like, oh, I just have to figure out what to, like, buy and cook? Yeah. The fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's the that's the thing is it's just really taught me to cook with vegetables more, which like when I it's it has taught me this in like a relatively short fashion, because like when I go to the grocery store, I look at the produce and I think, what do I need? You know, oh, I um like I, I come in with a list. I come in with recipes in my head. And I grab the things that I need for those recipes. And um, what just getting a random fucking assortment of vegetables that I cannot predict has taught me is that, like, <clears throat> I have a standby of, like, if I come home from dinner or if I come home from work and I'm tired and I just need dinner, I'll, like, throw some spaghetti in a pan. In another pan, I'll heat up some olive oil, toast a little black pepper in it, um... Once the spaghetti's done cooking, throw that in there. Make like a cacio a pepe. That was that's the fucking yeah. word I'm looking for. And now what I've learned is, well, I might as well throw some fucking peppers into that olive oil too because I have these peppers and I'm, they're not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's taught me to cook with vegetables, not in a in a sense of oh I need a recipe, but in a like I'm making this. I guess I'll put some fucking vegetables in it. You know. Yeah. And it's made my meal. It's made my cooking. A lot better in a very short amount of time. It is like ma- dramatically improved the meals I make, but it is also sometimes <laughs> a pain in my ass. <laughs> yeah. 
Which is the thing. Sometimes <clears throat> I was a little self-conscious because you cook so much more from just like, like you don't have a recipe. Yeah, I do. And I know. I... When I make dinner, I'm usually f- doing it from a recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had some stuff recently. Like sometimes if there's not leftovers, I will just cook something simple for myself for lunch. Mm-hmm. And from that I've learned... I don't actually need a recipe. I use a recipe for Emily's sake because Emily wants like, this yes. is the recipe. I want it to be the way that the recipe is. Um, I think some of this might just be like autism stuff for her where she wants like the consistency of this mm. is the recipe. But like, I just completely made up from like just my knowledge of the the food itself. Yeah. And from like just general like Asian cooking stuff, I just completely like pulled out of my ass a recipe for tteokbokki, the mm-hmm. like uh, Korean rice cakes and like a spicy um, like, you know, soup thing. And I ate it myself and I was like, oh, this is really good. Um, and then Emily wanted some. So then uh, last night mm-hmm. she had me make it for her. And again, I just like just improved made it, it. up improv yeah. it and then she was like oh this is really good and then she's like make sure you write down the recipe and i was like okay i'll do that for you <laughs> yeah so so that's the other thing is that <clears throat> when i i get to cook for nora and me because we have such mismatched schedules with you know like being hourly workers like when i cook for nora and me i like to tell her i'm making this dish and i'll I don't usually follow the recipe when I do it, you know, or I'll mm-hmm. tweak it. You know, this week I put shallots in it instead of white onions or whatever, you know. Oh, yeah. I'll make those tweaks all the time. Yeah. But like Nora, um, it's easier like it's easier when I'm trying to communicate to another person to be like, hey, I watched this video. I want to try this recipe. Um, And usually Nora and I will talk about like. Oh, let's cut that part out. Oh, I think maybe it needs like a little spice in it. What do you think? Okay, yeah, I'll put like a jalapeno in there too. Like we'll yeah. we'll usually like tweak it, but she kind of like she knows what she's getting into. Whereas, you know, the other six days of the week, well, one I just order a, a lot of DoorDash because I have a stressful job. <laughs> yeah, and I order DoorDash a lot. <laughs> Sue me. But on the days where I can get it together to cook. I'm usually, like, I have kind of fallen into, even before the CSA box thing, like, looking around the apartment and, like, well, I have noodles, I have a can of tomatoes, I have, you know, this and that, I guess I'm making spaghetti. And it kind of led me to, like, making the same meals over and over because I keep the same staples on hand. And that's fine. I'll eat spaghetti and tomato sauce three times a week, every week until I die, and I'll be very happy. (laughs) Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I'm usually like kind of making things up as I go along when I'm cooking for myself anyway, because it's usually coming from a place of I am tired. I went to the store three days ago. I don't really remember what I've got. I'm just going to grab stuff and and put it in there. Yeah, which is also another thing the CSA box led me to is realizing, oh, there's like healthier staples I can keep keep around, you know? Mm-hmm. If I'm going to just cook like the things I have around anyway, I like went to um I went to the grocery store and I bought I wanted to buy a smaller one, but they only had a 5-pound bag. So I bought a 5-pound bag of lentils with the logic of I don't know if I like lentils. 
I don't know how to cook with them, but if I have a five pound bag, I'm going to look at those in the pantry every night when I'm trying to cook something and think, I guess I'm going to throw lentils in there. And lentils are pretty fucking good for you. So like, yeah, it has, I don't know. It's probably good for me to just do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing I've learned just making uh, lunches for myself <clears throat> is the, also the like thing that I've built up as like skills of, I just know how to cook these things is very specifically like stir fries, fried rices, um, like curries, these sorts of, like, I just understand how to like build those yeah. spices and those flavors. Yeah. Whereas like, if you gave me like a fucking whole turkey, I don't know what the fuck to do with it. I don't, I haven't <laughs> learned those skills. Yeah. If you gave me, uh, some cooked up turkey, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to like build a bunch of stuff around it. And this is just going to be like the meat that gets put into it with yeah. like noodles or, you know, I'm going to just stir fried noodles and it'll be in there or fried yeah. rice or anyway, we should actually start the podcast. This is a 24 minutes post pod of us talking about food. Mostly. How do we even get onto this? I don't remember. No, but like, so the thing you were talking about with like knowing Asian cooking and stuff. Yeah. I don't know nearly as much about like Asian cooking as you do, but like, Part of the part of the whole thing that has like led me down this path this year of like I feel like I've learned a lot about cooking is like there there were just a couple nights where it was like like I had I was like thinking to myself I'm like I kind of want Chinese food but I'm too broke to order Chinese food tonight what can I do about this and so it was like well. What do I like about Chinese food? I like white rice. Okay, I'll start a thing of white rice. What else do I like? I'm like, well, I've got frozen gyoza. I guess I'll put that in there. And I'm like, you know, I just like scrambled eggs and I have eggs here. And scrambled eggs is kind of like a fried rice thing. I guess oh, once man. The... I should teach you how to make uh, the stir fried tomato eggs. Oh, you should. They're really fucking good. I and they're eat... so easy. I would eat that shit up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can even do, because I do, well, we got you some of the, the stuff too. So you have like cooking wine and yeah yeah there's yeah. there's some stuff that you like hooked me up with at Mits at, at Mitsua the Japanese grocery store that I've like barely touched because I just don't have any concept of how to incorporate it into my cooking really yeah if um, you if you look at recipes on just one cookbook you'll very quickly see how like those just get used in fucking everything one of the one of the things that really sucks about I feel like I've learned a lot about cooking this year. Um, and a lot of that learning has come via YouTube. One of the things that is unfortunate about YouTube as a platform is the way that it, like, promotes and surfaces to you white men who meet, like, a certain standard of, like, production value. And, I, you know, I have learned many things from that. Most of what I have learned is, like, Italian cooking, French cooking, Southern cooking, Midwestern cooking. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> Things that... Uh, part of the reason I've been able to learn a lot is because I already have, from my own background, familiarity with those things. And so I've been able to watch these videos and be like, oh, I think I'm going to tweak tweak your idea. I'm going to take your idea and I'm going to tweak it. And I've learned something out of it. Um. Anyway, yeah. Just, like... Yeah, whereas my 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 dad was the cook and is not a very good cook. Uh-huh. Uh very like functional yeah. cook. 
not like having he doesn't have like a good sense of the actual flavors to build in a dish um he doesn't have like a like a thing that he that i taught him much later is like when you put potatoes in oil to cook them Mm -hmm. don't keep stirring them let them brown let them sit and they get that nice little crust yeah it's so good like let that happen with a lot of food yeah i think a I think this is in general with like a lot of Americans that I've seen cooking in particular is that like Americans love to try and stir it because they feel like if they're doing more work, it's going to yes. be better. And it's like, no, let it do the thing. Yeah. Or get really into stir frying. Yeah. <laughs> well, so anyway. But, but yeah, so- I, I basically, because of that, the point where I went from picky to realizing that I really liked food <clears throat> was me trying stuff finally that I would turn my nose up to because it was so weird, like Thai food, Indian food, and being like, there's so much flavor happening here because my dad just doesn't even understand how to use spices at all. Yeah. Extreme white Midwestern cooking yeah. style. Yeah. Uh, spices are you put in some Italian sausage when you're cooking that up. Mm-hmm. That is adding spices to your yeah. dish. Um, and so because of that, it was like, oh, I'm going to start getting into all of this. And then I, at that time, blogs were still even in a fairly new thing. Mm-hmm. So it was a combination of cookbooks and then me starting to find some blogs. Although Emily is more of the, the blog yeah. based. I think some of that is also like she likes all the different recipes and all that yeah. kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Um, but whereas me, like I, I especially started gravitating as it went more and more, like as it went on towards cookbooks that are about... <clears throat> here's how to cook this kind of food. Here are recipes. But what we're really trying to teach you is in Japanese cooking, you're going to have uh, cooking sake, like rice wine, vinegar, mm-hmm. um, the dashi broth, uh, you know, sugar, soy sauce. Yeah. And like those right there are basically like, and then like the main ingredient. Mm-hmm. And that's the basis of so many dishes. That's the basis yeah. of gyudon. That's the basis of oyakodon. That's the basis of nimono. That's the basis of, like, most dishes are going to be some variation of that. Or you'll just, sub, like, you'll take stuff out. You're doing sushi rice. Okay, it's basically just the rice vinegar. Like, yeah. You know? Or Indian food. Here's how you build a masala. Here's how spices mix. And so I started gravitating towards that, in part also because of Alton Brown, Good Eats. I th- yeah. I learned a lot from watching him as well on TV because I, th- I felt like he was always geared towards, I'm not just telling you what to do. I'm telling you why searing is important. Uh, I'm telling you that it's not some of the like myths that you hear of like it locks in the juices, but that like specifically you have caramelization happening on it and mm-hmm. specifically like, you know, so, and it actually will draw out more moisture, but like specifically on the surface here. And then because it's on the surface here and then here, you get the sensation that it's juicier because you have a drier surface and then the wet inside, yeah. even though it's technically less juicy. I have like three thoughts spinning out anyway. from this. <laughs> One, I'll just finish up a thing that I was saying earlier was just that like part of the reason I got down this whole path was I had like this night where I was like, oh, I'll just make white rice, scrambled eggs, these frozen gyoza I have. And, like, some pickled ginger that I have in the fridge. And I was like, oh, this is not, like, I wasn't making a, like, Asian meal, quote, unquote. But I've, like, hit on, ooh, that's a gross bug. Oh, it's a daddy long legs. Um, Here, I'm going to squish it. Anyway. Oh. Anyway. 
Um, and it was just like, oh, I've like hit all the like, this is not like a specific thing, but like these are like some of the ingredients that I might have gotten and now I've like satisfied that itch. Um, two, the other two things. One, um, if you're listening to this book or if you're listening to this podcast, I cannot recommend the book um, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat by uh, Simon Nasrat. Uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, I cannot recommend that book enough. That book is not... That book has recipes. That book is about expounding to you a theory of cooking, of how food works, that it, like, genuinely has changed my life, you know? Um, And so much of it, she also talks about, like, you know, like, it it just dramatically improved my cooking... um, to read that book and she has like a big chart in it. And it was just like, well, if you want Mexican food, like, you know, your acid is usually going to be like lime or beer. Your fat is usually going to be like a neutral oil, like vegetable oil or like lard. Um, your like, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, and it was just like, Oh, like this, like sort of theory of cooking like it, it just made everything make way more sense, you know, because yeah. I also I grew up watching a shit ton of Alton Brown because my mom watched a shit ton of Alton Brown because I think like Alton Brown is like probably the mo- most like important figure in home cooking in the America of the last like 50 years. Like I, yeah. I, I think <clears throat> he has like changed more people's way that they cook than like Julia Childs did. I, like, yeah, I, I think he is like. Definitely my generation's Julia Child. Yes, Like, Julia Child changed the relationship that people had, and then that's, like... Yes. You know, my parents' generation. Our generation was watching Alton Brown, and then it being this different approach that's more about, like, the science of it. My mom and her mom shared a love of Julia Child's, and then me and my mom shared a love of Alton Brown. Alton Brown's such an interesting guy, too, because, um... Well caveat that Alton Brown is like a Republican or something, I think. Anyway, who cares? Um, Not who cares, but the important thing is he is an interesting figure because Good Eats is such a smash hit and and he's still been doing this work long after Good Eats has ended. And so if you watch any of his more recent work, there is a lot of it that is like, well, you know, a lot of people talk to me about like, this thing I said on my show 15 years ago and I realized like three things that were wrong in that episode and 10 things I could have just done better. And like, it's so interesting the way some people will take good eats as scripture. Um, and, and like Alton himself seems to take good eats as like a starting place, you know? And he has spent so much time critiquing good eats and, and like revising it. Um, and all those things. I just, I, I, find his work so interesting you yeah. know as as a person who every time podcasters get on a show and just start talking about process stuff i'm eating that up every time him and jackson talk about what it's like to make a podcast oh candy to me um <laughs> other people do it too but em and jackson do it a lot <laughs> yeah <clears throat> um there there are two and there there are cookbooks that are tied to um like restaurants uh but they're they're really good for learning a lot of um like 
techniques specific to cuisines. Uh, Dishim uh, Cookbook, which that's like a, a famous place in London. Um, that one's really good for a lot of explaining a lot of Indian food. <clears throat> it's the best explanation that I've seen for how to properly build a masala, which is that you want a high heat and you want water and you add water when it starts to like burn too quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's how you caramelize. It's not caramelizing over low heat. It is over high heat, but with water. Mm-hmm. And that is going to specifically change the like way that stuff breaks down in a way where you are, instead of going to have those like still very whole onions that have gotten caramelized, you're going to get the uh, onions breaking down as they're caramelized. And you're also huh. usually doing a, a much smaller cut on the onions as well. But mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> So like that's an important part of the process. Um, and a lot of it is this like process of the water, like cooking the water out of something and then adding more water in. Mm-hmm. You'll like cook all the water out of the onions and you'll kind of keep some water in there as long as you need for it to get to the color you want. Then you're going to add some spices. Spices don't have any water at all. So you'll add a little bit. Um, then you're going to add like the tomatoes and you're going to cook the tomatoes until, the, until there's no water in there anymore. Mm. Then you're going to add more water in. But you specifically want to get the water out so that you can like start cooking the actual tomato and changing how the tomato tastes. So it's a lot of like you get it to this point and then here and then especially once you get to the point where that water is out of something, you're kind of moving back and forth because otherwise you're just going to like completely stick it to the pan, yeah. you know? Um, so that's really good. And then Xi'an Famous Foods has a, a cookbook as well. Um, and they're New York based. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is specifically the region from like from China where uh, my brother went or where my sister-in-law is from. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do a really good job in that of breaking down. And then also being like, here, here's how to like build a meal. Mm-hmm. So you'll just see recipes and it'll be like this with like these, like serve it on rice or in a bun or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's also a useful one. And then for Chinese cooking, it's the website, just one cookbook. Um, fantastic. Um, and really there's just like a handful of things you put in your pantry and you can make pretty much anything. It's incredible. (laughs) We should, we should start the podcast. I will just say if you like me or a person who hangs out on food YouTube a lot, or you like are sort of peeking into that, peeking into that world, but don't know much about it. I will just say real quick. Um, I've been very critical of Adam Ragusea's content in the past i actually i've come around to really liking him because i think he's like very grounded in like that's a dude who has children and what it is like to like cook when you have a full-time job and children you know um which is like important because i started with watching babish i think babish is very much grounded in like cooking to an audience and so Mm. i think he is not always conscious of like what is too much work to be putting into this? What are the corners I can cut? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, similarly, um, Joshua Weissman, very big, per- like probably the most popular food YouTuber, YouTuber right now. If you watch Joshua Weissman's videos, I would encourage you to stop <laughs> because I think he is actively teaching people bad habits in the kitchen Yeah. Um, for the purpose of him getting more views. I, th- I think he's, like, actively detrimental to people's cooking habits. Um, and I would just encourage you to watch 
I, I, I like Ragusia. I really like Helen Rennie. Um, I wish she did more videos. Um, and like maybe Babish, if you're like being aware of like how much effort you are willing to put into a dish, because sometimes he's more willing than I am, you know? Yeah. Um, that's my food YouTube. Oh, and J. Kenji Lopez, all truly the king, like wrote one of the best damn cookbooks ever. Um, and also his, his, he is extremely like making videos uh, like I have a full-time job and I'm a parent. And so my cooking videos are strapping a fucking GoPro to my head and cooking that shit. <laughs> it's seven minutes long. Cause I do not have time. Yeah. <laughs> his, his videos are fucking incredible. Also, you get to see so much of that man's feet. If that's, you know, if you want to see Kenji Lopez's alt, Kenji Lopez alt's feet a lot, I've got some great videos to recommend to you. <laughs> they all have POV in the name. <laughs> I've never once watched a YouTube. I was gonna do this joke earlier, and then you did this feet thing, and so now I feel like the joke isn't gonna land the same way. But I was gonna say I've never once watched a YouTube video. What's that? Well, um, it is primarily YouTube videos are primarily centered around how much of Kenji Lopez's alt, Kenji Lopez alt's feet do I get to see in this? Start the podcast. I, there was a part where I was like, we're 25 minutes in. We should do that. This is, this is 40 some minutes at the end of Bella Lugosi's dead.